This is another of the occasional episodes of Behind the Book, a conversation about the people, places, and ideas associated with my new book, Daniel Morgan, A Revolutionary Life, which, I should add, is available from your local bookstore and from the usual online vendors. If you're interested in getting a signed copy, then go to the Historically Thinking website and click on the tab labeled Daniel Morgan to find three wonderful bookstores that would be happy to sell one to you. Hello. On October 3rd, 1773, William Smith wrote to classmate Philip Vickers Fithian of a recent commencement at the College of New Jersey. Never was such a commencement at Princeton before and most likely never will be again. The stage covered with gentlemen and ladies, amongst whom was the governor and his lady, and that he might not appear singular, Lee was stiff with lace, gold lace. The Lee to which Smith referred was their friend and classmate Harry Lee of the northern neck of Virginia, the peninsula between the Rappahannock and the Potomac, a place in Virginia literally lousy with Lees. At his, at his graduation and throughout his life, Harry Lee was loath to let anyone else steal the show when he was around. His failures and personal trials, as well as his triumphs, were consequently spectacular. Possibly a case of post-traumatic stress following the war for independence, risky investing, massive debts and imprisonment for them, a brutal beating at the hands of a Baltimore mob, years spent in the Caribbean, slowly dying, self-exile from wife and children. But then there were the credits on the other side of the ledger. A brilliant young officer in the American Revolution, a successful independent partisan commander in the Southern campaigns, a governor of Virginia, state assemblyman and congressman, a Southern Federalist of vision, and a memoirist who deserves more distinction. With me to discuss this unusual and forgotten man is Ryan Cole, author of a new biography, Light Horse Harry Lee, The Rise and Fall of a Revolutionary Hero. I should say that this podcast is part of the run, a regular run of Historically Thinking Conversations, but it is also a gateway drug to a number of other podcasts I've been recording in the last couple of months, which are the backstory uh, to my own book, Daniel Morgan, A Revolutionary Life. And you can find a link to those podcasts on the homepage of Historically Thinking by going to historicallythinking.org, going up to the menu bar and clicking Daniel Morgan. So, Ryan, um, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been a long time uh, in the making this conversation, and I'm really uh, happy that it's about such an interesting and operatic character um, who's like a star of sometimes opera buffa, maybe of tragedy. It's, he does everything. He's the hero. He's the villain. Um, let's talk about the sub-subtitle first, which I did not mention because I grew irritated by it but I'm sure your publisher insisted on it so that people knew who he was. Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah. Um, and the sub subtitle is of the, would yeah. you like to share it? No, you, you go ahead. It? I want you to say it out loud. The, the tragic life of Robert E. Lee's father. Right. So Harry Lee is generally the first two paragraphs or a couple pages, depending on the length of a biography of Robert E. Lee. Um, Robert E. Lee has been psychoanalyzed via Harry Lee. Uh, via a sort of father, a competition between fathers, between um, his real biological father, Harry Lee, and his spiritual father, George Washington, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, so you had to fight through all that. Uh, so let's get that out of the way first. What would you, how could we characterize the sort of Harry Lee tradition as seen through the life of St. Bob? as my sister who's a graduate, Washington Lee, always refers to him as. 
So St. Bob is preceded by the, the venal, disgusting father, I guess, is kind of part of Bob's story. Yeah, I, you know, to be candid, coming, I came to Lee's story through Robert yeah. because um, I had always, I had never, learning history in college, even before then, I knew, I was vaguely aware that Robert E. Lee came from a family of revolutionaries mm -hmm. and it didn't make a whole lot of sense uh, to me. Yeah. So when I finally got around to learning about Harry casually, which then developed into realizing what a fascinating man he was. And it went from there. Um, so obviously, I came to it through Robert. But writing the book, once I started writing the book and researching the book, I realized what a really peripheral character he is to the actual story. In other words, had Robert E. Lee never been born, mm -hmm. Henry Lee III would still be a significant mm -hmm. uh, figure in American history and particularly the founding. So I think that's important mm -hmm. to, to mention that mm -hmm. this, we don't remember him just because of who his um, son was, but because my angle ultimately was, I think there's a bit of irony in who his son was. I didn't want to spend a lot of time getting, mm -hmm. getting either of them on the couch, you know, in terms of trying to figure out, I think that, Obviously, someone did a calculation in terms of the amount of time they would actually have spent together, you know, and it was it was, you know, because Lighthorse Harry was either in jail or in, on the run or in exile or tending to his faltering uh, businesses when Robert was a child. So they spent so little time together. It's hard to make the case that there was any actual influence other than. Growing up, Robert must must have seen the pistols and the saber and obviously was aware of his father's military history and obviously was part of his own calling. Mm -hmm. and, and the other boys, too, Smith, Sidney Smith, um, and Hen Henry Lee IV as well. You know, they, they also had military careers. Um, in the last chapter of the book, I did get around to talking about the connections, and there are connections, obviously. Um it's interesting how what a colorful, as you described in the introduction, um, what a colorful character Harry Lee was, and what a large, operatic, you know, figure he was. And and I don't find Robert to be. I think Robert, in a lot of ways, is a bloodless figure. <laughs> Spent his whole life trying to control those impulses yeah. that that Harry let run wild. And if uh, if we were to continue, I mean, Robert is a reluctantly a character in an opera. Um, yeah, that's that's very that's totally accurate. Um, or Harry loved opera, by the way, and was you know would happily participated in a oh, production. Yeah. yeah. So um, I guess one thing I did I did pick up through the looking through the um, sorting through the history and through through little stories of the revolution was that there are portraits of of Harry. Um, especially before Guilford Courthouse, marching through the lines as the battle's about to begin, waving his sword, which was covered in blood from a skirmish earlier in the morning, screaming um, at the militiamen mm -hmm. to get ready, to prepare, to, to destroy the British. And um, this comes from a pension application mm -hmm. filed many, many decades later, describing a, a lust for battle. And his face, almost a rage had come over him. And it's not quite the same thing, but I remember always you always hear about um, 
before Fredericksburg that Robert remarks, uh, I'm going to get the quote incorrect, but it's, it is good that war is so terrible. Otherwise, we would grow too fond of it. And I saw a connection. There's a connection there that obviously the, the, uh, the I don't know what term you like to use, but the, the lust for battle, the father and the son had it in their own ways. And you could make the argument that some of their talents weren't dissimilar, that, you know, Harry's kind of signature, I think, was being able to improvise in the battlefield, being a compelling figure who inspired his men and could make the case that Robert had those too. So if you want, if you want to argue that these things are passed down from generations, you can see a connection there. But, you know, psychologically, I think that Robert did... What I said is maybe it was just intuition. Uh, uh, maybe, you know, he obviously would have known uh, his father's downfall and the disgrace. And, you know, obviously he was af afraid of debt. Mm -hmm. he, he fretted that his children wouldn't know him. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, those are all things that obviously you can, mm -hmm. you can make the case that he remembers no, his childhood. It, it's certainly those, those two things particularly are things that he had learned in, in, the, in the negative from his father. Right. And, and of course, uh, was attentive to, to his wife in a mm -hmm. way that, that Harry wasn't to his wife. Yeah. And so, but I just, I didn't want to get too far into it because I think the story, Harry's story is so interesting. Yeah. Now, now we don't have to, for the rest of the conversation, <laughs> we're not going to mention Robert E. Lee again, because this is about Harry Lee and the American revolution and the early Republic and the civil war is just, it's so late in American history that my nose bleeds sometimes when I think about it. So we're not gonna we're not gonna talk about him again. So he comes from, as I said, a, a place, the Northern Neck, which is uh, a unique place in Virginia uh, to this mm -hmm. day. It's a little out of the way. It's sort of tucked between the Potomac and the Rappahannock Rivers. It's not close to D.C. It's not close to Richmond. It's just its own place. Um, how long the, do you know anything much about the Lees in North, the Northern Neck? How long they had been there? I don't know a lot about that myself. The the family had bounced around in the peninsulas, yeah. I believe, since arriving uh, in Virginia, and um, they had been. Stratford Hall was built in the seventeen, I believe, the seventeen forties. But the family had been had moved around. It's when it had started to split. Had moved around in that part of the, the Commonwealth or the colony at the time. Um, but Henry Lee was born actually closer to DC. He was born in Prince William County in, in, at Leesylvania because his father, Henry Lee II, was really one of the first Lees to move upriver, inherited a plot of land from his father, Henry Lee I, and he built Leesylvania, which was um, that offshoot of the family's ancestral home. It's not there anymore. There's a state park. There's maybe a couple foundation stones that you can see, but the garden still blooms in the spring. Some of the lilies, some of the wildflowers are still there. Um, so he grew up not too far from what would become Washington and not too far from Mount Vernon. And um, he then, he ended up in, at Stratford Hall because he married mm -hmm. Matilda, the divine Matilda, Matilda Lee, his his cousin, um, who was the heir to, to Stratford Hall after her father, Philip um, Bloodwell, Bloodwell Lee, yeah. died. We've got Philip Bloodwell Lee. We've got Richard Henry Lee of Chantilly. It's very hard to keep Still, track of. And they've all got the same names. They're all Harrys or Richards or Thomases. Or yeah. 
Um, they're yeah. everywhere. Uh, it's just yeah. like the song in the musical 1776, only they could have added many more leads to that list. Um, yeah, and there's leads in Maryland. There's, yeah. It's very hard to keep track of, but it's it's interesting to note that this branch, you don't think of the leads as being in the northern part of the state, mm-hmm. but the branch that Henry Lee came from uh, actually was from Prince William County. But he, you know, he was, what, 18 or 19? The war came, he was gone, <laughs> and he never came back. He, after the war, he married Matilda and settled in Stratford Hall. So he was, you're, he was, you know, the majority of his adult life was spent, in theory, Mm-hmm. on the northern neck although he was traveling, traveling gone, a lot. but gone, he was gone. in debtor's prison in Lancaster County I think it was I mean that was <laughs> that was where Stratford Hall was or that's where he spent a couple of years you know whether, yeah. he, whether he liked it or not um so he went to Princeton or the College of New Jersey as it was that's right why that's right at the time this is a, a uh, we'll try to get a two off subject here but yeah. John Witherspoon was recruited um because the university was in a bit of a, a crisis leadership crisis he was brought to the states um and what he ended up doing was he turned the college of new jersey into um not just a seminary but a place where young men from all across the country could come and get um prepared for life not just in the church but outside of the church as well and during his fundraising drives to shore up the school's finances he came through the south mm-hmm. um and he was in virginia and i i can't say for sure if Henry Lee II was there, but he gave a speech in um, Williamsburg at some point, and Henry Lee II was in the you know legislature in the House of Burgesses, and he may have heard the speech. Same way that James Madison I think, ended up going to um, College of New Jersey. What ends up happening there is he turns Witherspoon, who ends up as a founder himself, you know, and turning into a, a kind of um, a warehouse of turning out these young revolutionaries, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, soldiers of distinguished uh, rank in the revolution, legislators, politicians, a huge number of boys come out of that school during Witherspoon's time that end up being big players in the founding, yeah. including and Lee. And, Influential clergyman, which doesn't seem important to us, but it was at the time. Uh, at the time, Philip yeah. Fithian uh, was died during the war, but William Smith went on to be, uh, I think, think a, a, an important Presbyterian clergyman. Uh, Andrew Hunter, another one of Fithian's friends, goes on to be the basically the founder of the Naval Academy, although it wasn't called it at that, that at the time. Um, so yeah, he's turned and, and lots of guys who not only are uh, are Presbyterian ministers, but founders of like Hampton Sydney College or of other colleges throughout the, the United States in the early Republic. So yeah, well, Witherspoon turns it into this first class institution that everyone that is drawing students from all across the colonies. Even I think I read somewhere that the percentage of students who were from New Jersey at the time that Lee was there was was you know. Uh, quite small. It drops very quickly. Yeah. And um, you mentioned in your intro, I love that snippet of Lee from the commencement um, in in Gold Lace. Those commencements up to that point, the years, the few years before Lee graduates are are becoming, you know, the commencement at College of New Jersey is the big event of the year. Mm -hmm. Everyone comes, there's bands playing, there's there's, uh, feasts, and they are becoming uh, increasingly hotbeds of radical dissent. The, the, the speeches that are being given are about independence, about separation, about the rights of man. And it, 
the year that Lee graduates, um, some of the, the board of trustees of the university say, enough, we can't have this. This is, we have to dial it back, no more. So that's, I think, one of the milder uh, commencements yeah. in that the, decade. But. The governor that William Smith refers to is, is none other than William Franklin. Uh, Benjamin's son, uh, who will go on to be imprisoned for being a loyalist, leader of the Loyalist Association, and so on. So it's an interesting clash of uh, of people on that stage. Well, between Harry Lee and John Witherspoon and William Franklin and everyone else, it's quite an interesting uh, conjunction yeah. of, of stars. Um, I think the the Princeton, one last thing about Princeton, yeah. but called New Jersey that I kind of thought was Lee's might be getting ahead of our, the conversation a bit, but Lee, you know, after the war is a very eloquent uh, mm -hmm. proponent of ratification of the Constitution. And one of his arguments is, is national unity. He says at the ratifying debate in Richmond, he says, I love my brothers from New York and from elsewhere, not, you know, not because I fought with them, because we're countrymen. Um, and to me, being in New Jersey and then later in the Army, he is with other men from other parts Mm -hmm. uh, other colonies, and I think it gives him a national perspective. So that time spent under Witherspoon's wing, meeting you know Aaron Burr, mm -hmm. meeting other the whole cast of other notables that will come out of there, I think is plays a part in his perspective that later leads him to be that um, a nationalist. Yeah, I think that's a that's a good point. It certainly it gives him a very different perspective than if he had gone to William Mary. Uh, right. And the decision by some Southern planners, Virginia planners, to send their kids to uh, College of New Jersey rather than William and Mary, there are various reasons for it, but the unintended consequences, they they do make these inter intercolonial connections that they wouldn't otherwise have made. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and you know, there's a, some letters from some of the other Lees urging Henry Lee II to send uh, Harry to England for an education. And it's interesting that he ended up staying in the country and going to New Jersey. But the, there were family connections. The, the Shipley family in Philadelphia mm -hmm. uh, had gone there, and they uh, could watch over the Lees. Could Lee, the um, Lees' younger brother also Arthur, went? Yeah. Arthur Lee was in London at the time. I think he was Lord Mayor or something like that. Um, something crazy like that by 1774. Yeah. So he had as had been trained at Edinburgh as a, a physician, but then was in was in London. So there. I, wasn't there? Wasn't he supposed to go and learn law in London? He was after he graduated from uh, New Jersey. That was the plan. I mean, obviously the war yeah. intervened, intervened, and that didn't happen. So he goes off to war. How's he, how does he? What, what part? What's who's he with? What, what's his unit? And, and what's he do? Okay. The, the, well, first I backtrack a little bit. Tell a fun story. Okay. Um, um, right before in 1775, in the spring of 75, he is invited to a dinner. At Mount Vernon, mm -hmm. and George Washington obviously is there, and so is uh, Charles Lee, not related, the general, the eccentric mm -hmm. um, soldier of fortune. And these are two men who obviously are amongst the most distinguished warriors in the in the colonies, right? And there's Lee, who is still just graduated from college, is at the dinner table with them, and obviously. I think this plays a big part in him saying, wow, this is something I want to do, being having the influence of these two. And actually, he, as soon as the, the war begins, he writes to Charles Lee saying, uh, you know, can I join? Can I earn my my uh, wings fighting for you? It never materialized anything. So he ends up um, he ends up doing militia work around 
uh, Leesylvania, um, Prince William County. And then when this is early on in the war in the Northern theater, there, the common belief is there's not really much need for cavalry or for light horse soldiers, you know, mobile, easily adaptable soldiers on a horse who travel without a lot of baggage that can get off, get back on. Um, the thought is because of the terrain, there's no need for them or very minimally. But, but then Washington starts to realize that's not true after um, the siege of Boston ends that he's going to need them. So um, Virginia decides, Patrick Henry's governor at the time, that they will raise some regiments. And that's where Lee gets his actual start under Theodore Bland, who's the Lee cousin, actually, who's the head of the Virginia um, Dragoons. And he, um, this, from the very beginning here, after he goes to, he begins to form, there's, I can't remember how many um, different units there, but he gets his own unit, fourth or fifth, fifth, um, man to be nominated to, to head a union, you begin almost immediately to start to see the, the characteristics mm -hmm. that will take him all the way to his last days. He's aggressively using his influences, his family influences to find arms and to find uniforms for his soldiers. Um, almost a ruthless willing. I mean, he, he was, they were, his soldiers had uniforms for many other in the Continental Army would have them. But anyways, long story short, once Washington decides that he needs mounted soldiers, these Virginians are then sent mm -hmm. to the, the main Continental Army. And Lee's early days are spent um, in the Northern Theater, largely skirmishing with Hessians. And um, one thing I think people don't realize as much in he was uh, played a huge part in supplying the Continental Army, especially in the lean times of the yeah, Valley talk, Forge. Talk, talk about that. Um, that's because that's what, really where he makes his mark, I think, in, in the yeah, Valley, Valley Forge winter. People people will say, people who are just learning about Lee or hear that because he's General Harry Lee, but obviously the general came later during the um, Whiskey Rebellion. He was, uh, so the comparison to Robert isn't exactly mm -hmm. um, Accurate. What he did, where he, uh, where his real fame was as kind of a, a bushwhacker or swashbuckler, often fighting between enemy lines, leading raids to commandeer British supplies, um, taking prisoners. These were all things that the army really needed, especially in that winter, those, that terrible winter when there was no food, there was no clothing. Lee is posted in between Valley Forge and, and Philadelphia, raiding often driving the germ the um the british crazy and there's a story about scott's farm it said lee is taking so many prisoners he's come during so many um supplies that the, the british said they have to dispatch of this irritating um rebel named lee and lee was posted up at a a place called scott's farm not too far in between valley forge and Philadelphia, and the, with, with seven or other eight soldiers at a time, and a force of 150 or 200 British snuck up on them in the middle of the night. And Lee throws all his men to the windows, and they manage to fight the British off. And when word of this gets back to Washington, he can't, he's, this is such a small, this is a very small thing. This is no tactical importance at all. But 
it's significantly important. It's a good. It's is, a good fight. <laughs> it's a good fight, and and it's a proof. This Lee is someone I, I keep saying, especially in northern northern theater. Paul Sook is another example, mm-hmm. um, which is a you know fortification off off of New Jersey, we'll which Lee takes. We'll get, we'll get to that. Okay, um, these are small things. These aren't major victories, but they are mor- morale lifting, especially mm-hmm. in dark times for the army. And that's kind of what Lee, especially in the north, when he's in the north, to me is he's someone who's got this bravado and this swagger, and you know he's able to fight off with just seven or eight other men, yeah. a much larger British force. And I think Washington sees that and he loves it. It well, energizes the army. Let me say. Um... Most of the continent, most of the continental army is fighting such battles throughout the American Revolution. Those are the important battles, or battles that skirmishes we never have no name, um, and that just go on all the time. Um, when you look at, um, say, a list of uh, when you when you compile a list of of skirmishes um, in say New, northern New Jersey during uh, the spring of 1777, there's literally some sort of fight going on every day. Um, and this is what everyone at the time referred to as partisan warfare. Yep. Uh, we would call it guerrilla warfare. They called it partisan warfare or petty guerre. And this was, um, you know, I would, I would call it sort of a, well, actually, Nathaniel Green calls it a fine nursery of young officers. Um, there is, we don't know too much about the training that the, or the live fire training that the Continental Army did. We do know they did do some maneuvers. Um, we know that certainly after the war in 1794, Anthony Wayne did lots and lots of training exercises that would look familiar to modern soldiers. Um, mm-hmm. It's hard to believe he came up with that on his own. Um, it's hard to believe that he hadn't learned that from somewhere, that they must have done it in the American Revolution. But there's not a lot of good evidence for it. Um, but certainly this continual fighting, this that he's doing from Scott's farm, this is where he becomes who he is. This is where Daniel, yeah. this is where Daniel Morgan becomes who he is, is um, and not a whole lot of evidence that Morgan became a great ranger on the Virginia frontier, much to my shock when I read up, when I studied, when I finally studied it, you know, he drank a lot of rum. He got shot up pretty good. Uh, he got 499 lashes for striking a British officer, but I couldn't find he learned much woodcraft um, or, you know, cunning ranger tactics. In the, mm-hmm. in the in the Appalachians, but by, I mean they were in combat every day. They were being shot at and shooting back and foraging and disrupting the British foraging. And this is this is their life, you know, fire training exercise that goes on through the entire war. And some, yeah, and some get really good at it. And Harry Lee and Dan Morgan are the two of the best. Yeah, you know, just to reiterate your point, and Harry Lee, other than you know. Actually, his you know his father was uh, head of Prince William's militia for a while, but there's no there's nothing in his background that would there's no formal military training. There's nothing in his background that suggests that he would be good at this. But they're doing it every day. You know, Lee says every day we we kill and are killed, mm-hmm. and that's you know as you said that's the huge part of the war and they're, they're battles with no names. It, it, it doesn't look a lot like the Civil War, and so it doesn't look a lot like quote unquote modern warfare that's actually warfare mostly as people have known it for most of human history and you know scott's farm looks a hell of a lot like uh sebastian younger uh rest repo uh, looks a lot like an outpost in afghanistan uh being yeah. hit hit by a much larger force 
um, and then defending it. And this is what, you know, this is the, this is this, what uh, Green calls a nursery for young officers is sort of the nursery that is going on in Afghanistan and, you know, northern Iraq for young army officers and Marines today. Um, this is where they learn, are learning warfare too. It's very similar to that. That's yeah. well put. Yeah. So let's move forward to Paulus Hook because that's a that's another inflection point in his career. Um, yeah, he, he's got an he's by this time he's gobbled up um, Alan McLean's superb light infantry semi-mounted unit, which much is, to McLean's yeah the, irritation. Who's yeah. Alan McLean being the other great unknown partisan warrior of the? I mean, that's a guy. He's a novel in, in and of himself. Um, but he did not like being subordinate to anyone, let alone Harry Lee. Uh, yep. A lot of bad blood there. He was he was still describing Lee as a monster after Lee died. Really? After did he? Died. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's so, interesting. Year, and he was still saying he was still bitter about having, you know, money redirected away from his men yeah. by Lee years after the war in, in the 18, 20s. You know, 18 teens. Yeah. 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 So not not happy. I think. Lee maybe didn't communicate entirely to McLean what his role would be. So well, Lee, had, Lee was Lee was a difficult person to be with. McLean obviously was a prickly character as well. And he also he had had his own independent company, you yeah. know. And then to suddenly be uh, he'd been fighting his own little partisan war, and to suddenly be underneath someone else. Lee isn't that much younger than him. They're pretty much I think they're more or less the same age. McLean's yeah. pretty young at the time too, but still. He, they had both been captains, and Lee gets a promotion to major, and you know, and then that's it's all wrong as far as McLean's concerned. A lot of that goes on in the Continental Army, anyway. Yeah. Uh, so yep. Lee has got this now. He's got this mixed unit of light infantry and cavalry. Uh, Anthony Wayne has stormed Stony Point. This is in 1779, yep. and Lee gets the idea to he wants a piece of that glory, and there's a loyalist fort. Basically, they built Jersey City on top of it. I think, right? I mean, it's yep. right, right there. So, describe right. what he what he plans and what he does. Okay. Well, just step back sure. one second because I keep. I think the while we're talking about the military stuff, we should talk about the personal stuff. Yeah, it's sure. An absolutely. Interesting man. portrait of, of Lee after the Scotts Farm incident. Not too long after that, um, Washington offers Lee a spot in his. <laughs> His military family, which, yeah. you know, is where oh, it's an administrative job, but it has, it's basically an equivalent of like, you know, being being I'm trying to think of a modern equivalent. You your future is made in a sense and you're it's, it's safer to there. You're not as much in danger and you the connections that you're making. It's, yeah, you're going to be very there with, working spot. there with. Alexander Hamilton, Hamilton yeah. Tetch Tileman, yep. um, John Lawrence is on and off the staff. Yep. At the time. So yep. this all is the, these young men who have this. Uh, Father, mentee, father, son, mentor, mentee mm -hmm. relationship with Washington, and he offers one to Lee, which is obviously because I, we already mentioned this. Forgive me, but he Lee knew Washington. Mm -hmm. In fact, his relationship with Washington was went back further than any of these guys because he knew him as a boy. Because Washington knew Henry Lee the second, he mm -hmm. stayed at Leesylvania on his way um, to Fredericksburg, or on his way to um, Williamsburg. So he would have known Lee since mm -hmm. a boy. So he's thrilled with Lee's, you know, progress as a soldier, and and not too long after Scott's farm, he says, "Come join my, my um, circle, my inner circle," 
And Lee, in an amazing letter, says no. Hamilton, by the way, transmits this um, this request. And they were they were already preparing. They had already told Lee's subordinates to you know get ready to take over the. Um, for, because Lee was going to be gone. They were assuming. That's how... No wonder why McLean was upset. <laughs> yeah. And um, so, but Lee says no. Lee says in a, it's a wonderful letter, says, you know, pardon my, pardon me for saying this, but my destiny is on the battlefield. Hmm. Wedded to my sword is the famous quote. He basically said, I want fortune. I want glory. And I have to get it on the battlefield. I don't want to do it in an administrative capacity. And the amazing thing is that Washington doesn't bat an eye. He says, I totally understand, think nothing of it, and in the future I'll find ways for you to um, achieve that. So as you pointed out, um, he gets the idea. He, the Lee and uh, his legion did a lot of the reconnaissance work for Stony Point, and, but they didn't do any of the fighting. And I think Lee... Um, Though Lee was friends with Wayne, I think it burned him to see the approbation yeah, this that is, Wayne got. This is very similar. Morgan resigned from the army because Wayne got the command of the Corps of Light Infantry. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. yeah. And so uh, there's a lot, of, a lot of people are burning up. A lot of other really uh, combat-hungry officers uh, get burned up by Anthony Wayne. An incredible amount of divas yeah, in the revolutionary by the, by the fourth year of the war, they're starting to yeah. emerge as they get more experienced and as the, uh, you know, as the sort of the other people are being skimmed off the top of the pot. Yeah. You know, the, it's amazing to watch Washington through the letters. Yeah. It's amazing to watch how Washington, how, how superb he was in many ways in dealing oh. with these. Oh, my God. It's just you cannot, you know, you cannot. Appreciate it. No, it's some of these letters. You're absolutely right. I mean, he's dealing with these divas. He's dealing with. He's got all these problems. And he's still sort of. He's so. Uh, what we would say now, I guess, he has a very high emotional intelligence. For yeah, the, that's that's wonderfully said. For the and guy, Lee is someone in particular who he had to use it with, not just during yeah. the war, but all, all the way and you know into the seventies. Lee is a man with very, still. in many ways, with very low emotional intelligence. Uh, and he, that's a fair thing to say. Is. Um, Morgan, I have to say, is, has a very high emotional intelligence. He's very. A lot of his riflemen, obviously, are a bunch of divas as well. Even the, the privates and the sergeants uh, are all divas. Uh, they all want to be fighting their own war, private war. Um, but Washington is just, you, you don't get that from the $1 bill, uh, that he's that emotionally attuned to people, but he obviously is. And, uh, and for, unfortunately, they all fear him to a certain extent or want to be him. So Yeah, and they, they, it, by and large, is the amount of respect to yeah. that they had. Not everyone, but No, not everyone, but substantial enough to make a difference. Yeah. So, Paulus Huck. Okay, so, so then because Lee is simmering and kind of resentful, he – and Washington has said, you know, if you have ideas, bring them to me. He had an open channel of communication with Washington. He wrote personally to Washington, which I think would have been a little abnormal for a soldier of his rank. Um, so he comes up with the idea to attack Paul Swift, this loyalist fortification um, uh, jutting off of New Jersey. And he plans it. He does reconnaissance work. He has to convince Washington that this is worth doing. I think Washington is resistant. There's a lot of a – lot of, um, the general thought was that it was impregnable, that mm -hmm. that they couldn't um, pierce it. Puts together the battle plan. Eventually convinces Washington 
to sign off of it, which he does. And um, it ends a bit, it, it's a success. They, they storm, there's a little bit, there's some, some miscommunication on the way, on the actual raid, on the way there, some soldiers get lost. Um, it's a nighttime march. I mean, nighttime march. It's, but they get in there. They 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 get in there. They sack it without without. I don't believe there were. They had any losses. There was any casualties on the American side. They get in. They get out. There's some communicate miscommunication. Boats that were waiting to ferry them away mm -hmm. didn't show up. But it's a success. The whole thing is a success. Again, not a huge. The British take it back. Mm -hmm. I'm mistaken. Not a huge tactical point in the war, but again, a huge morale lifter that this, you know, this previously thought unpregnable fort could be brought down like this. And it makes Lee a hero, but it also, we're, we brought the subject up of the divas, the combined force that was put together for him to use on the raid, there's all sorts of resentment about the fact that he was, he commanded it, about the way he conducted his affairs. And so he has this great moment Really, this is the highlight of his military career at this point. He conceives this raid. He executes it successfully. Washington's thrilled when he lets Washington know the next day. But then he's court-martialed mm -hmm. almost immediately afterwards for a series of um, charges that were all – they end up being he, – he defends himself at his court-martial. They end up all being dismissed because it's really the, the work of jail soldiers. There's a moment there where he tells um, – uh, actually, William Rogers, Clark's brother, older brother, there's a moment while they're marching where he says to Lee, says, How, when did you re receive your commission? How are you leading this? And he, he I don't, I'm going to say lie is the correct word, but in the heat of the moment, he doesn't give an accurate answer because he wouldn't have outranked Clark at the time. So that's, you know, these are these little things that are brought up after the raid that facilitate him being court-martialed unsuccessfully. But this is so the charges are dismissed, and he actually ends up getting a gold a congressional gold medal. He doesn't get it; he never gets it, but it's it's awarded, and he's the only soldier below the rank of general during the revolution to get one. Great, great, you know. And Washington sends out really praiseful words. But the, again, we have to continue to talk about the personal as well as the military. I think that 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 having that glory temporarily snatched away from him played a big part in the, the trajectory for the rest of the war. He was an e egotistical man. He was a vain man. He was incredibly sensitive, as you said, low emotional intelligence. That's, <laughs> you know, um, or I would say maybe poor impulse control. Yeah, even. And this is something that bugged him. And I think he was paranoid from here on out about having not being properly recognized, having his achievements uh, taken away from him, having his opportunities taken away from him. So this is Paul's a success. Um, it's an important emotional victory for the Continental Army, but I think it leaves a scar on Lee that he is a that never really heals, and it ultimately I think ends culminates in him leaving the army before the war comes to an end. The uh, so and yet we're at the at the sort of his finest moment is uh, when he is, I guess, a year after Paulus Hook, or thereabout, uh, he, the Partisan Legion that is now sort of officially consolidated. It's strengthened. It's what we would call a combined arms sort of detachment, <clears throat> infantry, yep. and, infantry and cavalry, and sometimes uh, the commander will send along an artillery piece or two along with it. So you've got a full threat. He's got it's a, a miniature army of 300 men is, 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 what he's, That's right. is what he's got. It's very versatile. Um 
and Washington sends him south uh, to assist the new commander of the South, Nathaniel Green. Yep. Um, there have a lot been a lot of about five books written about Green in the last 10, 15 years, unfortunately. I say unfortunately because kind of they're all the same book. Um, the But that is, in many ways, the Green-Lee relationship is a real odd couple pairing, much like the Green-Morgan uh, relationship, and yet it's remarkably successful. Yep. Um, Green is is sort of exactly the commander that Lee needs to be successful. Um, so what do you, what, what do you think about that? I mean, how does, how does that work out between the two of them? Because Lee, his memoirs were actually meant to be a biography of green. He, mm -hmm. in some ways, insofar as he revered anybody, um, it seems to me he revered green even more than Washington on some level or something, or, or, or certainly he found something in green that was important to him. Um, emotionally and in terms of honor and all the rest of it. Yeah, he named a child. He named his last child with Matilda, who died mm -hmm. subsequently, Nathaniel Green Lee. Mm -hmm. So that's to give you some indication of his yeah. esteem. He actually, in, in the um, Congress of the Confederation, uh, whatever the official term is, he introduced um, a measure to create a monument. Mm -hmm. For, for Green, right after Green died. So he, you're right. I think it's another case of, as we were talking about with Washington, emotional intelligence and patience. And, you know, Washington sent Lee to Green as a weapon. And mm -hmm. Green knew what an important weapon that was. And he knew Lee's talents. And he put up with a lot of petulance. A yeah. lot of petulance. But yet, um, while at the same time, giving Lee remarkable independence. Absolutely. Which Washington, and, and Lee, which Washington I have to say, Washington is a micromanager. Um, you look at the way he runs his Mount Vernon. I mean, no one is ever good enough for him. Uh, Washington's a terrible micromanager. It's one of his great shortfalls, I think, as a, as a, as a, his only shortfall as a, as, a, as a great leader is his micromanagement. Look at his diaries for how he runs the Yorktown campaign. Yeah. He, he, he uh, insists on the length of the tow ropes between boats going down the Chesapeake Bay. He even dictates that. Um, but Green is got, I don't know, his ego is different, whatever it is. He's able to allow people to go do things and, yeah. you know, and take, and even take credit for it. It's amazing how many times he would give, give Green or Lee an order and Lee would write back and say, no, I don't think that's what we should do. Here's here. You know, if you allow me to storm Charleston, mm -hmm. I can take care of this and, and just, you know, they put up with him. And I think that this is, um, I think you just, as you just said, this is really where this is Lee's high water mark during the revolution. In particular, I think this is where his talents really come out. Mm -hmm. uh, I think this is where his uh, ability to improvise is is really useful. The war posts to me, in particular, I think is when you, it was fascinating to learn about and read about to see, because this is again, you know, they the part of the strategy was that Lee, with often with Francis Marion, would tear through. Uh, South Carolina's interior and dismantle mm -hmm. all these this installation. Yeah, so post, just, describe post describe one of those instances because that's you know as you say, Lee. They're trying to while Morgan is sorry more while Green Morgan's uh, basically gone by this time. There's an interesting episode right before Guilford Courthouse. We should probably talk about Guilford Courthouse before we get to the war posts. Um, Lee tries to prevent Morgan from leaving, according to the memoir. Maybe it happened that way. Maybe it didn't. But Morgan, in many ways, Lee shows up when Morgan is riding away. So they kind of, they never, they barely overlap. Was was Morgan going home because of health? Was that yeah. the problem? That mm -hmm. his back was the problem? Well, he had this thing. He writes to Green, you know, every once in a while, I, I get this pain in my back, which makes me drop in my, wherever I'm standing. 
um, <laughs> uh, which sounds bad. And uh, I know that when they were crossing the Yadkin, he had another attack of probably malaria of, of you know, the, that's endemic in the blood, something. He was lying, shivering and sweating on a leaf mattress and then was up a couple hours later talking to scouting parties. But he was in bad shape. Uh, he, I, it's, it seems to me he barely made it home. Uh, hmm. he, he stopped every two days to like rest up. And, uh, by April he was still had, um, blackout headaches. Um, and he still had that pain that would make him just literally drop in his tracks. Um, you know, God knows what he had, probably everything, uh, yeah. he, you know, <laughs> given the mileage he had had on his body by that time. Uh, but he recovers, right? He recovers. He recovers. he recovers well enough to go, you know, camping in the Pennsylvania woods and smack yeah. a guy in the mouth and knock him out for charging too much for whiskey, you know, and when they go to the fight the whiskey rebellion. So, but yeah, his, he, he is in bad shape throughout 1781. So, Guilford Courthouse. It's the, the, the big, you know, it's a big, the, um, battle the southern theater mm -hmm. uh, it's a weird one because the americans don't win but they win it's like to say it's a, a the americans had a superior force in numbers uh, to the british british still carry the day but it's so costly to the english it's the beginning of the unraveling i think it's you could say it's the beginning mm -hmm. of the road to to yorktown lee's presence there is this is something in the, the these battles is that they're a lot of debate mm -hmm. or where he was, what he was doing at the time, uh, he, improvising during the battle away from the actual action. He, does, he gets separated from the rest of the army and doesn't mm -hmm. reunite with them until later. These are things that kind of would hound him. Um, yeah. afterwards. Although Green, Green, you know, heaps approbation on him in the, the orders after the, the battle. It's interesting. Uh, contemporary historians, contemporary military historians, my, my sense of it is, you know, I talk to them, is that they're always – Oh, they don't like Lee, you know, that where was Lee at Guilford Courthouse? You know, the guys who are really into this, where was Lee at Utah Springs? You know, uh, yeah, it's the same story. Same, it's almost exactly the same story. Um, it makes me either think that it's distorted or true. I don't know. It's one of the, but it's not halfway. Um, I just chalked it up to the natural course of these, the chaotic course of these battles. Yeah. That, you know, that Lee was tending. And this is also Lee's personality, too. Uh, you know, I think he was. He's riding here and riding there and distracted. But mm -hmm. but again, in both cases, I think Green um, made a point of acknowledging Lee afterwards. Although in the um, one case, Utah Springs, it wasn't it wasn't sufficient for uh -huh. Lee, the Lee. praise. And I think that ends up being – that's the linchpin to him and leaving the army. That's the one he so. can hang – at least it's the hook that he hangs his anger, his, his anger upon. When yeah. he eventually he doesn't leave for another year, I don't think. Um, but that's certainly he's still angry about Green not being vociferous enough in defending him for miscon yeah. misconduct in yep. Utah Springs. Another, um, well, I think proportionally both of those battles were, in terms of per capita, people engaged were much more costly than any uh, Civil War battle. Yeah, these were nasty, they're awful, bloody, bloody, and some 40, of forty percent casualties, I believe, yeah. on both sides. Um, yeah, most, most, and most of them. Yeah, uh, but little known, little known. One of the, yeah. one of the things about writing this book was kind of fun to talk about. Was I, other than you know people who are avidly interested in the revolution in American history, the Southern theater in particular, the battles are not particular. They're not very well yeah. known. I'm so avid, I've been so avidly interested in it for so long. Um, it's. Uh, 
it's always hard for me to realize people. This is always the thing. I, what, I recorded a conversation, part of this little um, series on, on sort of behind the book, on podcast in the book, recorded with John Slaughter, who's the superintendent of the Southern Campaigns uh, group of the national parks. He can reel that all out very quickly. I can't. I think that's it, more or less. But it's uh, King, uh, Kings Mountain, um, the overland trail from Tennessee to Kings Mountain, uh, Cowpens, and, and 96, uh, speaking 96. of the war posts. And um, he that's a, his continual lament. And it's a many other historians lament, too, that no one knows about the Southern campaigns. I think, it's, which is weird because they're the most, part of the most interesting part of the American Revolution. They're certain, yeah, and also, you know, the, the, Green strategy is really what ends up leading to Yorktown. You can argue paved yeah. the way to the end of the war to to American independence. But it's a very uncharismatic strategy. It's, yeah, and it's not easy to convey. To it's not easy to, to convey. It doesn't look like yeah. the Civil War. It doesn't look like Napoleon's yeah. wars. You know, we had a I had a guest on back in the summer, Kathleen Nolan, talking about the um, the allure of battle, the way that we overestimate the importance of battle. Uh, Green has always been, people say, oh, well, you know, yeah, he's a great general. Sure, he lost all his battles. Well, how is it that, that it should say something more about people's conception of battle uh, than it does about Green, that he was able to, quote unquote, lose battles and yet win the entire campaign. Yeah, now, and yeah. he's lost X number of battles. The British are confined to Charleston and cannot control the Carolinas or Georgia, you know. Um, right. But it's not a. It doesn't look the way that we imagine war is supposed to look like. That's uh, absolutely right. It, it looks a lot more. Once again, it looks a, more, a lot more like insurgencies and partisan warfare. It looks. It doesn't look like a Napoleonic war. It doesn't look like World War Two. It doesn't look like World War One. Certainly, um, yeah. but it looks a lot more like war. It looks a lot more like the Hundred Years' War. It looks a lot more like warfare has traditionally looked throughout human history. Um, yeah. So, Absolutely right. But as you say, it, it just took me a long time to say that. Uh, <laughs> and so it's really hard to explain the, the fact that, you know, Nathaniel Green, you know, is probably one of the greatest generals in American history. It just, yeah, that's absolutely right. Second, you know, in that war, second only to Washington. It may be obviously. better. Yeah. You know, uh, but uh, Washington is, is more skilled at certain other things. Uh, certainly, he's much more charismatic on the battlefield. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. But Green is Green has the same sort of political military grasp that Washington has, and that you know a lot of American generals don't have or haven't had. Yeah, yeah. So. absolutely. Um, his uh, his relationship with Lee. Well, I'm getting a little ahead of myself. Yeah. Uh, we, we I guess we should talk a little bit about the war post. Yeah, let's talk about the war post. I, we're, okay. we're starting to we're starting to we're really starting to go over time. But well, okay. But um, I don't want to end. I could. We, I know, I'll, let's we, end the. Well, we can end the war. I'll just say the war, war posts are interesting to me because, yeah, again, about, you're yeah. seeing Lee. It's it's the strategy is to knock out the, the connection from the, from the sea into the interior mm -hmm. of South Carolina. The and southern, to, and these, um, basically these forward operating bases, to give a modern yeah. name for them, which are yeah. supporting the, um, the Loyalist population, which, yeah. if they're supported, will come out and fight. Yeah, and that was the British's belief that the, you know, that the loyalists would sustain them in these these southern states, and I think that the goal was to show that these loyalists or many loyalists what 
siding with the British yeah, when they, they it, lead them. Yeah, and it, it, I mean, it, I said this. This yeah. is a civil war again. This is a, not to go back to Robert, not to bring him back, but don't, don't, Harry Lee is fighting in a mention. civil war oh, yeah. okay. in the in the in the southern states. This is a civil war because mm -hmm. they're mostly they're largely fighting other Americans. So these posts, the goal is to knock out these posts, these fortifications, these communication lines, supply line. And what's interesting is that. A lot of time he's paired with with uh, with Francis Marion, which is another weird mm -hmm. collaboration. Two two men who are dissimilar. Which works though, at least yeah, it's it effective. Works. Yeah, it works. And what's interesting to me, what's fascinating, is that you're seeing Lee improvise. You're seeing they get to these forts and they can't dislodge the the soldiers, so they have to figure out ways to get them out. They build a tower with trees. The the um, they call them the Mayhem Towers after one of the soldiers who who came up with the idea. So they climb up and they can rake fire down on the fort and they have to give up. Or in Fort Mott, which is the most interesting to me, they it's uh, built on the land of a, a widow from Charleston who has moved out there to escape from the British who commandeered her home in Charleston. The British follow her out there. They take her home. They take her land. They build a fort. Lee gets there and she says, I don't care. Burn it all down. And they light arrows on the tips of arrows on fire, wrapped with some type of insulation, and they launch them down onto the fort, driving the British out of there. But one of the forts, um, I think it's Granby, Lee bribes the the um, the colonel in charge, Andrew Maxwell, bribes him to give up the with loot and booty to get to get him out of there. So it's just a series of yeah. him adapting and improvising. He said he uh, says he'll let it, he'll let him keep what he has. Keep what he has. And give him free yeah. passage out of the fort. Yeah, you that's know, right. Just, uh, I, it's it's great to have a guy who who sees that uh, victory doesn't have to come with a battle. I mean, it's it's very Sun Tzu, right? I mean, it's yeah, absolutely. He can, he can win uh, without having to fight. Yeah, and that drives. I think it's Sumter drives him nuts because he wants that that booty. He's he wants the furious loot. at Lee. How else is he going to pay for his, pay his soldiers? You know? Yeah. So, but that, to me, you know, again, these aren't battles that are recalled. You're not reading about these battles often unless you're reading specifically about the revolution in the South. But they're important. They're not you know, set-piece battles, but they played a significant role it's in a, leading to independence. And there's they usually leave real one, it's, They're small. There's 300 people on one side, 500 maybe. Yeah. And there's 200 people on the other side. Um, but by the time – At least constantly on the move to marching, constantly speed and haste. So to me, that's – you because you, you mentioned what do you think is – real you know high point in mm -hmm. the southern southern theater is to me that those those cumulatively would probably be and they're really interesting and yeah, kind of yeah. fun they're kind of fun to read about and, learning and how I mean, they adapted it, it seems to me he's he's um he's in a, i mean yeah his speed security um the improv improvisation he's like the model of uh, a, a junior field commander you know these days a field commander does not have that much independence um, rightly or wrongly, but that technology doesn't allow it. Uh, but when someday uh, in some war where the GPS breaks down and the satellite communication system is compromised, uh, people would have to think again like Harry Lee had to think when he was in, yeah. the, in the Carolinas. Yeah, um, and often f very far away from the rest of the army. Yeah, very far away. And didn't and sometimes didn't had no idea where Green and the main army was. Yeah, that's um, right. You know, for a few uh, for a week or a, at a time or something like that. Um, yeah. So he leaves. Uh, it always seems to me he has a case of post traumatic stress disorder. I, I don't like medicalizing these things or like psychologizing, but he's really busted up inside. Um, he's yeah. Yeah. Ego. His ego was bruised. Uh, he doesn't feel he's receives uh, sufficient praise he's physically 
the letters from around that time mention him being sick. Yeah. So I think he's physically tired. I think it's it's interesting that you you mentioned the idea of uh, post traumatic stress during so. Uh, when he decides to leave after Yorktown, he's at Yorktown as a spectator, which mm. obviously must have upset him because he's sent by Green to um, – the goal was for him to, to get Washington's ear and have Washington focus on what was left in the south after Yorktown. So he sent Lee to Yorktown. So Lee is there for the surrender watching as a spectator. And I just thought that was amazing. He, he must have bugged him because then you had Hamilton was there and Lawrence is there. His Lafayette timing was great. These guys, it's yeah. just, it must have burned him to see all these uh, these yeah. friends, yeah. you know, who had participated. Anyways, um, he, when he goes back, it seems to me at this point, he disappears for a while. He doesn't come back immediately to, to Green. Oh, really? He's wandering around in Virginia. Huh. For a while, you, you weren't yeah, able to figure out where he was. Washington says, "Where is he?" There's a couple <laughs> really? letters saying, "I'm waiting, I'm waiting." Uh -huh. So he, so it seems to me that he's disengaging a bit, considering mm -hmm. also how long he had been at, at war, yeah. almost relentlessly. So it's almost as if there's some speculation he may have visited Stratford Hall and spent time with Matilda. I can't verify that, mm -hmm. but it seems like he's maybe starting to think about life after the war. At the time he goes back. Lawrence arrives. John Lawrence arrives about this time into Green's army, and I think that's another point of resentment because there's another ambitious, politically connected young soldier who shows up looking for glory. And um, Lee, they collaborate briefly on an island uh, near Charleston, which ends up the the nighttime raid falls apart. They can't cross the the, the raid on St. John's Island. St. John's Island. Tide comes in or something like that. Tide yeah. comes in. Yeah. It, they. They try it twice. It ends up not happening. Lee, that's it for Lee. That's mm -hmm. the end of the road. And he um, gets really bitter and angry with the Green uh, for really no reason at all. And it's always amazing to me that I mean it, that would not work with Washington. Um, Green basically puts it to one side and says that Lee's not well. Yeah. Well, the letters between them are that there's a series of correspondence after Lee leaves, uh, before Lee leaves, during Lee's departure, and after, mm -hmm. and the. To your point, some of the things that Lee says are pretty outstanding, that outstanding that he would feel that he could say that to his general, but it's complaints about – many of them are complaints about not being sufficiently recognized, about there are other people, there are forces in the army who are trying to deny him mm -hmm. you know, the fame and fortune that he wants. That he, There's always like a bit of a forced um, – Modesty, saying I'm, you know, I'm feeble and mind, things of that nature. But very candid with Green that he doesn't feel that he's being recognized. And Green, as as you said, is just so patient and so tries so hard to convince Lee that these are phantoms in his mind and that he has nothing but. Love. I mean, one letter he does say, "He, I love you, I love you." That's exactly <laughs> yeah, what he that, says. Yeah. And it's it's a very remarkable correspondence. It's it's in a lot of ways it's heart-wrenching in a way but but lee was as I said he was he was broken up uh, it, it was the end he was tired he was emotionally exhausted he'd been fighting for so long the ego was in play and he leaves but there's something that green says to lee that to your point about post-traumatic stress or uh, he says to lee he says after lee's gone he says you will marry you become a farmer but you cannot cease to be a soldier and that's absolutely true because for the rest of his life, Lee conducts his life away from the battlefield as if he were still on the battlefield. Yeah. 
And Which I think the transition, yeah, the transition was very difficult for him to make. I think Green was exactly right. But that's a really interesting part of the story is that his relationship with Green and those letters in particular, it's, it's very, I just can't imagine uh, any type of corresponding back and forth between uh, in general and a subordinate like that. It's also that they serve, well, um, Lee didn't have access to them so they didn't get burnt. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean that, um, you know, there are six letters survived between George Washington and Martha. Mm-hmm. Um, and those yeah. were, one of them was stuck behind a drawer, right? Um, and most of it, they survived by accident. Uh, she destroyed them all. Uh, 18th and 19th century people wrote each other a lot. Yep. And they also destroyed a lot of letters, which were too intimate. Um, so it's really interesting that it's it's very gratifying in some ways that there's a, even a letter in which uh, preserved in which Green says, I love you. Um, that is intimate enough that someone might have burned it, you know, or something like that. Um, yeah. Or at least, it, yeah, uh, been destroyed as just too personal. Yeah, uh, and this, this set of correspondence is, is incredibly personal. I, I try to, to capture as much as possible in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, so I hope that people will, will be able to read it and, and see what we're talking about and maybe be as um, touched. It yeah. is touching in a way. It is back touching. Back and forth. Yeah. Um, so uh, Lee leaves the Southern Army and he goes back to Virginia. He marries his uh, was it cousin, like second yeah. cousin or something. Second cousin. Yeah. Yep. So it's not too weird. Uh, <laughs> Matilda <laughs> of Stratford Hall, um, mm-hmm. and he kind of, she's inherited Stratford Hall, right? So that's how he that's right owning it. Um, yeah. And then what? Well, he starts investing at this point, doesn't he? I mean, uh, yeah. This is around the time that Washington's setting up the Great Falls Corporation to set up the Great Falls Canal, and Lee decides to become a, a, an investor. Yes. And that yeah. and, and in that lies the root of most of his problems, right? Exactly. So yeah. t- talk about that, because I, I don't know much, much about that. I mean, other than they put a lot of money in, named a town after his wife, and lost it all. Yeah. Well, um, <clears throat> as, you, as you know, um, but still probably worth reiterating for your listeners sure. that this was a, an affliction very common amongst the founding generation, this, the poor investments. Yeah. Uh, they were they were brilliant guys, but weren't great. A lot of them, only a few were really good. Washington was unique in that, you know, he knew how to manage his affairs. Robert Morris and James Wilson had similar fates Wilson. to Lee in that. Yeah. yeah. And in fact, pathological, Wilson was almost a pathological land investor. I mean, it was like, yeah, it was like a gambling habit. And in fact, Lee, they both, Morris and Wilson, died owing Lee money, <laughs> money that Lee tried to get. Yeah, so you can imagine. But, but so the, the general idea was that you have a new nation and you, there would be infrastructure projects, uh, roads and canals, rivers would be open, commerce would flow, and land that wasn't occupied as the population moved westward would and was not valuable would become occupied and therefore would become valuable. And Lee and many others saw a fortune to be made in this. And he in, in, almost immediately, as you said, after he finished in the war, he married Matilda, he inherited Stratford Hall and all its acreage and its... Um, the, the plantation and all the operations on it, he began to 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 speculate feverishly, and with that, with much more enthusiasm than actual savvy business acumen. Which also, I think, is the case of him as a plant. The idea of him as a planter is, you know, Washington 
really, you were talking yesterday about how, or the day before, how he was a micromanager. He loved the minutia of, of his tending to his farm and his plantation and was enthusiastic about new forms of agriculture. I don't think, I, Lee, I, I don't think was shared any of those enthusiasms, yeah. I think. It's, uh, I, I think that the difference between, say, Morgan and, Morgan ends up with 125,000 acres of Western land. Mm -hmm. um, it's a heck of a lot of land. And he probably got a lot of it from, I don't know if Lee did this, but investing in soldier certificates in the uh, certificates that entitled soldiers to um, Western acreage, buying them up at less than their value in order to give soldiers some immediate cash. It's what, yeah. very, very, it's what everyone's buying. Washington regards as a morally, morally questionable. The only thing worse is taking slaves in payment for, for Washington. He's, he says that as much in a, in a letter. Um, so Morgan probably uh, almost is certainly investing heavily in soldiers' certificates. Mm -hmm. um, so he's getting a lot of land cheap. But I think he also runs his farm better, like Washington did. Um, you know, Washington, I was just talking about this the other day with someone, one of his his genius as an entrepreneur is to keep all of his operations, to make as much money on his farm as possible. He doesn't just grow wheat, he makes flour. He doesn't grow grain eventually, he find, and he discovers that rye whiskey is, is, is better than flour. So you make mm -hmm. everything as high value as you can on your farm before it actually leaves your farm. Which, you know, a lot of farmers, if they knew that today, there probably would be more farmers in America um, because they'd be making a lot more money. Was um, was Morgan successful as a as a farmer? What? Well, he had he had land to give away. It wasn't yeah. all on in hock. Um, he had, you know, a very small number of enslaved people, which is like it or not, is the measure of wealth. Um, uh, he had, so he had about fifteen enslaved people. He had a you know a, a fairly nice uh, had a cat and he had, and he had a fairly nice. Uh, number of cattle and he had i think oh gosh several many hundreds of acres in his immediate area which was difficult to acquire and i think that must have produced enough to give him a comfortable income at the time but he was also heavily invested in like mills so he he was a sort of a joint partner with a another person to building a, a what's called a, a merchant mill a commercial mill Mm -hmm. um, and so he was a little bit ahead of the curve. Um, Warren Hofstra, who's the, the historian of the, uh, the colonial and revolutionary backcountry, he's told me that not, there's not a foot of hydraulic pressure that is not used for mills in the lower Shenandoah Valley, which is an absolutely extraordinary idea. Every mm. bit of water that can be used to power a mill is being used to power a mill. Um, Morgan's, that's the case by, I think, 1810. Morgan builds his mill around 18, 1785. So he's, like a lot of people on the lower Shenandoah, getting very rich from grinding flour and shipping it down the Potomac uh, and eventually putting it on the train and sending it to Baltimore. Mm -hmm. So Morgan is like Washington. Uh, Washington writes about this in his diary, how he meets with Morgan and Morgan's an enthusiast for the canal, huge enthusiast for the canal. But they do all, I mean, they, they do, uh, he's in, Morgan's also involved with projects to, um, they never build a canal along the Shenandoah, but they build these like wing dams 
to uh, hold up the current so that boats can pass down it more uh, easily. Um, mm -hmm. Lots of stuff. There's that that uh, actual that boating trade up and down the Shenandoah River, which is a small river, uh, it lasts up until the 20th century. Um, Fascinating. Yeah, even though huh. even through the age of the railroad, it's still going on. Hmm. Um, and you float a boat to Harper's Ferry. Uh, if you're a Ben, is actually built. The wood in many of the buildings comes from the barges and rafts that would come down the Shenandoah to Harper's Ferry to the canal, and then would be broken up and sold for lumber. Hmm. That's so, amazing. Yeah, so you get everything back. You know, everything is sold by the end. Very efficient. Very efficient. So Morgan's yeah. part of that, developing that trade. Um, so I think he, and Lee just doesn't seem to me, I mean, you tell me, but psychologically from what I know of him, he's not that kind of, he doesn't see that. He just, that's not his thing. I think he's too distracted also. He's a, he's a soldier and a scholar, really. I yeah, mean, and also he, the politics too, he can't stay away from the he politics. Can't stay despite, despite many typical protestations about I'm done with politics for good, he's always yeah. gets back in it. But he puts but, a lot of money in the, in, the, in the canal company, in the Potomac company. Basically. That's really the, the, piece, the piece de resistance in his mind of uh -huh. his investments is that, that when the Potomac is opened up at the Great Falls, he's going to open, he's going to create a manufacturing town right. there, which eventually is named for his wife, Matilda, after she passes Matildaville. And as you know, if you go there, you can still, you, there's a few scattered yeah. remains, which, which is really a fitting monument to leave <laughs> in many ways, I thought. It but, um, it's, uh, and that's Great Falls National Park. Now. Yeah, at least that's the, right. The Virginia side of Great The Virginia side where yeah. Matildaville was. But immediately he buys the land. This is a, this is a convoluted thing, but he buys the land from the Fairfax from from mm -hmm. Brian Fairfax. And immediately after buying it, he realizes that the Fairfax didn't have pure uh, title to the land. So he has to wait to, to get access to it and has to pay off back money owed to Virginia to have access to the land. So immediately he's trying to raise money. Madison is in with him initially at the beginning of this. James Madison really? is in. Yeah. And they um, are Old definitely trying to. Yeah. <laughs> right. And I, I, they're definitely trying to raise money. And he Lee encourages Madison to try to get Jefferson involved mm -hmm. early on. Mm -hmm. and Jefferson's not interested. And I believe Governor Morris also is the one who they approach who says, I'm not having anything to do with this. This is a bad, bad idea. And Lee spends years trying to get the title to this land. And he does eventually get it. But the whole thing, you know, never comes to life. And uh, only if the town, the proposed town in Matildaville only ever really amounts to a couple buildings and a restaurant, which I believe lasted into the 20th century. But you go there now and you, you can see that it didn't, didn't work out. But that was just one of many, many, many investments in Virginia, outside of Virginia, in Kentucky, all across the, the states that Lee bought, gobbled up wildly without any real plan and a kind of starry-eyed um, ambition that this was going to be a fortune. And it, and it was an addiction. It absolutely was an addiction because he, he was still trying to carry on with the speculation when he was in exile and, <laughs> and destitute. He was still sending letters to his son, Henry Lee IV, about acquiring land. So it was a, a real addiction. And it, it was, as you pointed out, it, was, it really was his downfall. So this is historical biography. So you have to answer some biography questions, um, not just to the historical questions. Um, why? What was it? Why this mania? I mean, this is really hard to answer, I know. But what is it about his character that made him... I mean, it's like, it's a terrible question to try to ask or to answer. 
I mean, why is a gambler, why is a chronic gambler an alcoholic an alcoholic is what we're asking. Because um, if this is a mania, but what, what is it about him that makes him do this? It's interesting. You, um, I think we, we talked a little bit about in the previous conversation, maybe about Lee's characteristics on the battlefield. Yeah. And the, the inability to transition smoothly to, to yeah. civilian life. And I think that, and this isn't this isn't novel. I think some of the, I mean, maybe Royster, some of the other um, historians who've worked on the subject have said as much is that the, the skills and the the personality traits that served him so well uh, in in war did not translate to civilian life, and he lived his life uh, in high relief, which that's. Um, one of the other historians used that term, and I thought it was great. And his ambitions were vast, mm-hmm. uh, ambitions financially and also for in terms of how he would be remembered by history. He wanted to be remembered like Jefferson and Washington and, and Adams. And he also had a, um, a great desire to make money, which is not, un- not unique, especially among that generation. But I think he had a, a kind of, you know, there's a great letter um, written by George Lee, who is another one of distant cousins. And in the letter, he's describing Henry Lee before the war, in the period after he gets through at Princeton and comes back to Virginia. And he says, despite his education in New Jersey and despite his upbringing at Leesylvania, there's a savage nature in Henry Lee. And I think that gets to the answer. What you're looking for is if there was something in his character of ambition, ego, uh, narcissism, and um, a, just a theatrical nature about his. He lived a very dramatic life, and I think the wild investment and the desire for fortune is very much at peace with that. It, it occurs to me that Victorians called a person like this a plunger. A plunger? I never thought about that, but he is a plunger. He plunges into things. Yeah, he, he rides yeah. harem scarum around the battlefield. Where's Colonel Lee? Don't know. He's over there. You know, um, he plunges into investments. He plunges into this. He plunge. He he, as we'll see, he gets involved in a riot for no particular reason. Um, yeah, yeah. This he's a plunger. Yeah, I, that's that sums it up quite well. And whatever he does, he does obviously with passion. But as we're talking about with the investments and and not much, not much skill, not much savvy. So politics is his other. It's interesting. I, you're you're right. I think he did want to be a Jefferson. I mean, he wanted to be remembered. He could have been. Re- he wanted to be remembered for his investments for Matilda Ville, mm-hmm. for for this competitor of the federal city, um, yeah. for um, for his political savvy and and influence. And also, I think I suspect um, when you're saying this, I suspect now that you know he must have been thinking about writing his memoirs or a biography of Green. For a long time, that would be another legacy, you know, befitting his his scholarly training and all the rest of that sort of thing. You know, I think the concept for the the biography of Green went back to the 1780s. I think so. Even went that far because when Green died, we talked about this in the previous conversation, yeah. and Lee was in Congress, was in the Congress of the Confederation. He he uh, introduced a measure to create a, a monument right. to Green, and I think that was at peace with the plan to also write some type of biography literary monument yeah Yeah. so he gets into politics um and 
shortly becomes governor of Virginia. So what are his, mm -hmm. what are his politics, what are his political leanings like? So you're pointing out he's friends with Madison at the time. So this is one of his interesting, this is part of his plunging, I think. Um, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. He is, okay, so when he's in the, con the, the Congress of the Confederation, he becomes disenchanted with the federal government. And it's not enough power, not enough power to collect uh, taxes. He's very uh, he's, much he's, an allied with Hamilton and his friends Hamilton and Madison. Yeah, and and so he um, he, along with Madison, argues on behalf of the ratification of the Constitution in 1788 in um, Richmond at Virginia's um, uh, convention and. I'm not going to say, I'm not going to try to, to exaggerate and say Lee carried the day in Richmond, but he played a part. He played a significant part, and he articulated against Patrick Henry and George Mason, who are the two grandees of Virginia politics and silver tongue, particularly Henry. Mm -hmm. He really carried his own in making the case uh, for the Constitution. He made the, one of the, the points, the arguments between him and Henry in particular was Henry was avidly against a standing army of any form. And Lee had fought in the revolution and had seen, he cited at Guilford Courthouse in particular, had seen that militiamen were not, he says that they're the great soldiers that you know, fought with them, but they are not sufficient to defend the nation. So he, he even though he was a junior in, every, in years and experience mm -hmm. to Henry, he's able to hold his own in the, this debate because of his own experiences. And he makes the argument quite eloquently I think about national unity. He says, like, I think I quoted this in our previous conversation. He says, you know, I love my brothers from the other, from the North, you know, mm -hmm. and he then says, he says, in all matters local, I will be a Virginian in all matters national. I will never forget that I'm an American. So he makes a, he makes the case and, um, you know, Virginia, the importance of Virginia ratifying the convention, obviously you, ha you have to have Virginia's buy-in because it's the, you know, biggest and one most influential of the, of the states, but you know something I'll share with you, which I think if you don't know, um, you may already know about it, but I think you'll find interesting, and your listeners will, is that during the the convention in Richmond, Madison writes a letter to Hamilton, who's busy in New York at the time with the, the Constitutional Convention, just saying, "Here's what's happening. You know, we think we'll carry the day. Here's how many votes we think we have." And then in the letter, if you get to the bottom of the letter, it says, "Turn over," and if you turn the letter over. There's another letter written from Lee to Hamilton saying essentially the same things. Mm -hmm. I, you know, we're optimistic. But that drove home to me the point yeah. that that Lighthorse Harry Lee, father of Robert Lee, was a member of the um, founding fraternity. He exactly. was very much yeah. a founding father. Just as much as John Marshall. Mar John Marshall was very important as a sort of behind-the-scenes operator. Very, very young, younger even than Lee or, Han or, mm -hmm. or uh, Madison. But that, that really does show us that for that moment, um, Lee was at the very inner circle of the uh, the nationalists. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, yeah. and it's interesting, you know, again, we said we weren't going to talk about Robert that much. No, let's, okay. I think it's interesting to, to contemplate that Robert, Robert E. Lee's father was in that inner circle. I think yeah. that's a, a remarkable, it's an interesting, it's, a, it's one of those things about history, the strangeness yeah. about how history unfolds. Yeah. It's absolutely. really shown there. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so he... And I should also say that in a previous episode um, with Lori Glover, we discussed the Virginia Ratification Convention in depth, and I'll link to that in the show notes. Um, 
he then is a Madison ally, even a Jeffersonian ally. Yep. Uh, for how many years would you say? I mean, when does only uh, only he's governor of Virginia for three years up until the Whisker vote, 1794, uh -huh. and he's he's removed from office when he returns by that time he had basically he started out essentially as a federalist sure. and as the federalist be, became a thing an entity he quickly quickly as soon as it's amazing because he's so overjoyed that the constitution is ratified and this new government is formed and his friends are at the head of the new government is the beloved washington his comrade hamilton and then immediately as soon as he gets wind of hamilton's plans financial plans the debt assumption uh, he he goes berserk he can't believe that states like virginia would have to you know help subsidize so he has the he's mirroring madison's ideas and and, and feelings at yes at, this, at that time very closely yeah and he a lot he he goes back it's amazing thing is he fought patrick henry tooth and nail at the ratifying convention and then immediately afterwards he's saying you know henry was right henry understood this better and so he, he this is a great thing we had to jump forward many years that when Henry Lee the Fourth, his oldest surviving son from his marriage with Matilda, years later spends a lot of his adult life trying to defend his father's reputation, especially vis a vis the Jeffersonians, right. who we'll we get into that later. But at some point, so he remember some of the founders are still alive at this point. This is in the eighteen thirties, eighteen twenties. He's writing to, to um Marshall and to Madison, and he spends time. He, he writes uh, to Jefferson. At some point, Madison or Marshall says to him, "You have to remember, your father was no friend of the the administration for for a number of years. He was one of the most vocal antagonists of Washington's administration." What's What's amazing to me, though, and you you get the letters and see this. To Madison, he fumes, fumes. I mean, there's talk. He walks right up to the line of civil war some of these letters really? yeah right up to the line but but and you can see the transition he eventually walks back and says this is terrible we lament these terrible policies but there's no there's no recourse the only recourse is civil war and as we talked about previously he fought in a civil war and he didn't he knew what a civil war looked like and he didn't want to see brothers sawing brothers in half again over dead so, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but but the one thing I was going to say that's really we're talking about politics of the era that is that's to me, I actually find Lee, maybe a little naive, a touch naive compared to Jefferson, Madison, and Washington. But something that's touching in a way is that he could he would write letters to Hamilton and oh, say, and say, you know, criticize these policies, and then at the end of the letter say, oh, I'm busy finding a horse for you. Mm -hmm. He maintained his friendships with these men, despite the political disagreements. And I think he was frustrated that he, he was upset to see that personal relationships could be fractured amongst the political uh, the partisanship. And, and I think that's laudable. You could say not a little naive, but it, to me, he, he was a little sui generis, pol pol political, politically speaking, mm -hmm. um, even though, you know, historically he's a federalist. But not, well, he it's complex. So did the Whiskey Rebellion change him? Did that Was that what pushed him to a different perspective? Is that what made him a Hamiltonian? Because he's certainly, uh, we would regard him usually as an arch-federalist by 1799. Yeah, well. I mean, that might I, be wrong. That might be wrong. But I mean, he did write a pamphlet 
really yeah. a sophisticated yeah. anonymous pamphlet advocating the Alien Sedition Acts. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I think it's a kind of it's a there's a, a gradual it's gradual and there's always personal stuff involved because around the time of the Whiskey Rebellion, he's intriguing against Thomas Jefferson uh, because he catches wind of a conversation that Jefferson had at Monticello where he's talking about President Washington. And he basically says, you know, Washington's fine and he will do the right thing as long as he has the right men around him. Mm -hmm. And when Lee hears this thing, it's the equivalent of saying the, the great George Washington is like an old man who has to lean on these younger men like Thomas Jefferson for, for to find his way. So it's, it's amazing how many people have listened to Jefferson for centuries. Uh, until very recently. Um, but anyway, they, they didn't read Washington's letters that much or, or realize that everyone else was dancing around him like, you know, he was, uh, he was, anyway, go on. Yeah, well, he, he, Lee, Lee hears this. And of course, he, he what is Lee going to do? What When Lee hears about this conversation, who's the first person tattle. Lee's going to, yeah. He's going to rat him out to teach her. <laughs> yep. And that's exactly what he does. And of course, you know, Washington, well, you know, Washington is, is just like, well, hi, Camp, you know. He, he, as he always does, remember we talked about emotional intelligence. He's yeah. not faced by any of this. He's not faced by, but Jefferson, oh, of but, course it gets but, back to Jefferson. But he also doesn't forget. Right. <laughs> that's the, the other part of it, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And um, Jefferson, um, Jefferson finds out about it though. And that's the beginning. I mean, Luke Lee basically sows his own demise politically by antagonizing Jefferson. But I think to answer your question, the falling out, the, the relation to him becoming antagonistic towards Jefferson is part of it. I think um, the development of the Democratic Republican societies mm -hmm. around the country scare Lee. And yeah. he's, he start, he's getting disturbed by that. That's part of the drift. And then by the time of the Whiskey Rebellion, I mean, he says in a letter to Washington that it, he dreads to, this is what he says, he dreads to point the bayonet at the heart of his countrymen. But he, like Washington and Hamilton, sees this as a legitimate threat against the federal government that has to be as much of a threat as it turns out to be, as, mm -hmm. as you know, obviously, um, something has to be done about it. So gradually, you know, his detractors at the time would have said, oh, this wasn't about politics. This was about you wanted a commission. You wanted a high commission. Um, but I think it was a gradual combination of things happening around the country that, that frightened him. Um, I think it was the antagonism towards Jefferson. And like you said, by the end of the century, he's pretty firmly a Federalist. And yet he, um, we should go back to the Whiskey Rebellion in just a bit, but it, it, it's these... The democratic societies are Jefferson, are, are, are Morgan's bugaboo as well. Um, everyone's all the Federalists, but but uh, Morgan actually mentions them several times in his correspondence, which is which is minimal. Most people write to him; he doesn't write many letters of response. Um, mm -hmm. But it's clear that he, just like everyone else, is frightened. Sees a sort of a seamless transitions between democratic Republican societies in Philadelphia, which kind of sound awesome, and I wish that we had more of them. They're basically, you know, debating societies and political civics lesson societies. Um, and he sees a seamless transition between them and the Whiskey Rebellion and the Jacobin societies. And these are all in their in their heads. This is all part of, uh, well, look, and look at Gil Ray's cartoons from the 1790s, the London Corresponding Society, which is 
as a lot of Englishmen see it, is threatening Jacobin, uh, Jacobinism, imp importing Jacobinism into England. Likewise, Morgan, Lee, Hamilton, Washington see these people as basically importing Jacobinism into uh, America. So that's the that's I, that's that is certainly their earnest and sincere belief. Yeah. Well, I think that the, the Morgan and Lee, uh, you know, their uh, reactions and responses were, were mirrored each other then, because I think that's pretty much how Lee's transformation went. But but Lee, you know, in his move away from the Federalists, a lot it was a lot of it was personal too. You know, was was him reacting personally? This jeopardy he thought it jeopardized his own finances, Hamilton's policies. Yes. But but I, you know, this is a dangerous game to play. Because it's um, talking about civil war and mm -hmm. and getting talking about uh, Robert E. Lee again, but from that moment that the federal government was created up to the Whiskey Rebellion, Lee constantly sides with the Union. You know, even when when he's aggrieved by the federal government's policies, is always a defender of the Union. When push comes to shove. Right? Yeah, when push comes to shove. After he's yeah. unsuccessfully resi resisted as best as he can, these things, uh, plans of his friend Hamilton, which will bankrupt him, um, or actually force him to pay to pay his debts, <laughs> is actually yes. uh, let's be let's be honest. Um, yeah. So the Whiskey Rebellion, he, Washington, basic, he's basically the commander of the army when Washington and when Washington, after Washington reviews them in Carlisle and Cumberland, Maryland, it's Lee yep. in command, right? Yep, um, that's right. Ahead of Morgan, who's his, by that time is his subordinate, um, yeah. commanding the light wing. But who, Morgan has sufficiently recovered his health and full of vigor, right? Yes, he's, that's right. He wants to squash these these rebels. Well, they were holding yeah. his daughter hostage, well, as he saw it. Uh, yeah. His, uh, is it, geez, Nancy, Nancy Morgan Neville is in Pittsburgh, and her father-in-law uh, and her husband, Presley, have fled. Pittsburgh or been forced out basically. Uh, and so she and Morgan's grandchildren are still in Pittsburgh. So he is somewhat concerned. Um, there's a personal thing there. And that's where he, um, in my, one of my favorite Morgan stories where he finds a guy selling rye whiskey for a dollar a gallon, which is exorbitant. And the guy gets sassy with him. So he says, I broke his mouth, which set, which settled the business. <laughs> He's now, now a major general in the Virginia militia and about 60s, maybe. Yeah, but, you know, he can still break a guy's mouth. So is Morgan in Winchester training before the Virginians leave? Is yes. he there? Mm -hmm. He okay. arrives a little later, but he, he marches from Winchester to Cumberland and then leads that the, the flying army, the light wing, uh, forward ahead of the rest of them. And in fact, he gets to Washington, Pennsylvania, as now is or was then. Mm -hmm. Um and I think rides in with Hamilton and a few other people, basically a, 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 probably a troop of cavalry, uh, rides into Pittsburgh in advance of everyone. So, and then Lee leaves him in charge. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> After it's all over, and, and Morgan is basically the military governor of southwestern Pennsylvania. What, yeah. What it amounts to. He's, uh, How long does Morgan stay? March or April. I think April. Uh, he he goes back to Winchester to run unsuccessfully for Congress against the now Jeffersonian candidate, uh, Robin Rutherford. 
who will become his political, they become each other's political nemesis. Robin Rutherford. Yeah, Robert, Robert Rutherford, I think. Robert. They all call him Old Robin, um, both friends and enemies. Yeah. So uh, it's very Jeffersonian. He's the worst. Everyone says he's the worst dressed man in, you know, uh, that part of Virginia. And yet he's, you know, basically an aristocrat. Yeah. Uh, worst dressed by design. By Very much so by design. Uh, yes. Yeah. yeah. So, yes, that's what. So Lee comes back. Is it then that he uh, thinks about going to France to command an army? Because that He thinks about France. I guess we jump backwards really quickly because I think this is worth discussing. Yeah. Is that he, um, in the middle of all this anger he has about Hamilton's policies and um, how disenchanted he is with the federal government, Matilda dies. Oh, right. And he also, this is in the middle of the Great Falls business too. He yeah. can't get... Uh, the deed to the property. Matilda dies. She dies. One thing I, um, in my book that hasn't, that is unique is that I, what, what I was able, my take on this, my guess, uh, looking at some um, documentation from the period, traditionally the assumption has been that she died in childbirth. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I, my belief is that she actually gave birth to a son, Nathaniel Green Lee, mm -hmm. who then subsequently died. And then she died um, within weeks of him. I, she was so sickly. Uh, I, she, I think the pregnancy may have killed her, but mm -hmm. she did. I don't believe she died in childbirth. And that was, this is what I said in the book. So uh, we'll see if someone stands up and disagrees with that. But, um, you know, Washington, Washington sends a wonderful note of consolation, um, by the way, of mm -hmm. um, it's it, typical as we were talking about his fatherly di disengaged, dis slightly dis a detached fatherliness, but in the middle of all this grief that Lee is having, and, and I should say he becomes governor of Virginia, and then he loses another, he loses uh, Philip Ludwell Lee, his son, uh, with Matilda, mm -hmm. which is the, which, who's the oldest son, was the heir. Mm -hmm. um, when Lee is off inspecting land in the West, as governor, he comes back home and finds out that his son has died. So he's just, he's grieving his wife and grieving his son, and he's at, he, uh, um, yeah, that's right. Um, um, so he's at a loss. He doesn't know what to do. And we'll get back to our theme we keep hitting. Where where does he look for some form of fulfillment? And that's the battlefield. And there's a revolution in France, and he's got contacts there. So he, he makes those contacts. Lafayette's in prison at the time, but there's a few other former revolutionary officers who are involved. And he's apparently offered a, a generalship, a commission as a general. And he's very close to doing it. And so, of course, who does he turn to when the decision finally has to be made? Who does he ultimately turn to for advice? And it's Washington who based, and again, another example of very, you know, uh, logical, detached uh, guidance says, well, now what, what would the people of Virginia and the United States and beyond think if the head of one of our largest states left to go fight in a foreign war it may not may you know may be unseemly so he talks <laughs> him he talks him out of it lee says oh it was just a ridiculous idea and instead he decides to get married again and and lee to me this was one of the periods where observing lee was the most fun because he's a bachelor mm -hmm. he's a, he's kind of romantic in the sense he's a grieving bachelor he's a governor he's still young he's in his 30s youngish for the time um, he's still the luster of the revolution is not gone. And here he is. He's described as driving a shiny chariot with 
you know, the most wonderful horses in, the, in Virginia, all around Richmond, and he sets his sights. He originally finds a woman who he's interested in who is not interested in him, but her roommate, Ann Carter, another a daughter of another one of uh, Virginia's great, the Carter family. It's, it's, a, it's a huge alliance. The Cars and the Lees getting together is like, you know, the... The Windsors and the I don't know who, but it's 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 the two big families. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so he marries. Uh, she's she's nineteen or twenty, uh, mm -hmm. decade or so his his junior. But like Matilda, these are women who are uh, beautiful, recorded to us through history as beautiful, as musical, as literary, having wonderful senses of humor. And again, it's like Matilda. You look at it on paper and say this is a perfect match. And in this case, he's in the middle of this period of grieving and kind of aimlessness that so you look at it and you would say, he's, he's figured it out. He's set now. He's married this, this beautiful, wealthy, um, engaging woman, and he's got everything going for him. He's a governor of, of this, you know, large state and he's got all these great connections and, um, but it's not enough. So th that's the, um, the temptation to go to France was before the, Whiskey Rebellion. Yeah, it's a it's a difficult marriage, isn't it? Um, they are very very different. Um, people usually um, focus on their religious differences, um, which are extreme, I think, or and become more so as time goes on. But I, I suspect that um, those differences of religion also are reflect other emotional differences. But yeah, I think so. Well, you know. She came from a big family and had a, a she was, uh, his, her father was, she had an older father and he, supposedly she was his favorite of his children and spent a lot of time um, dedicating his attention to her. And now she's married to a man who very quickly is, is a gone all the time, who's yeah. absent and is um, unattentive. And she spends a lot, of, I think initially she claims to like living in Stratford Hall. But she's alone all the time. And, you know, the, one of the great stories is that Matilda's clothing is still in the closets there. So there she is in this house, which by by this time is is Lee's not around very much. Lee didn't have a lot of money. This house is not being taken care of. The The land is not being taken care of. It's starting to, to fall apart. And there she is in the middle of all this now starting to have her own children with a husband who's not around. And she does and have child after child. She does have child after child. Yeah. And... Um, I think that it's it isn't. I think he's a difficult person to be married to, and especially during that period, you get into the eighteen hundreds. He's gone. He's on the run. He's hiding. Uh, pieces of the property are being picked apart and picked away. You know that ones that are not under protected by a trust. But you know Matilda put a lot of that stuff in a trust before she died because she she obviously knew that it would be in jeopardy of being sold off mm -hmm. or lost, and her her children would not be able to inherit it. So, and the religion too, you know, I think by the end of his life, Lee is professing deism mm -hmm. in these letters that he writes from the islands and, and she obviously is very pious. So it's not- She's a, she's a sort of a characteristic Anglican, Virginia Anglican of the time who's becoming more evangelical. Yeah. Uh, as yeah. the Great Awakening takes off. Um, yeah. The Anglicanism is becoming very much more evangelical than it had been. Um, so we've kind of we're, we've moved by. He, he's famous for after Washington's death. I think he did come up with a line, although this is I think this is debated. First in his, uh, first in war, first in peace, first in the hearts of his countrymen. Yeah. Uh, um, but really, that's just a little bit of 
in the midst of it, everything else is falling apart all around him <clears throat> yeah. um, during his, his time in Congress. Um, when do things finally hit the fan um, in terms of the debt? They hit the fan after they hit the fan in the, the years um, in the first 1800 to about 1809 is when things really that decade, the first decade of the, the 19th century is when things hit the fan. And um, it, it's interesting because he's got this one term in Congress, yeah. right? And it's a, this period that he has this gives a speech, which is which still I think is one of is uh, uh, should be ranked among the most important. Is ranked amongst the seminal pieces of American rhetoric, especially of that era. And you're a, and you you're know? a speechwriter, so you you have to yeah. write to your opinion. You you wish you had written it. <laughs> you, well, you have professional jealousy when you. When well, you... I think it's well. Put it this way, people. I don't know how many speeches from um, the the founding era or from the the. Uh, that period that we can still quote, that we right. still know lines from. So, and it's forever linked him and Washington together. And it's, mm -hmm. so that's, that's real last part. But if you read the speech, it's a wonderful speech and it's full of florid, you know, obviously typical of the period, but also very typical of Lee and has a great ending where he basically says, he, he talks about Washington's career and he takes the audience to the, you know, banks of the Monongahela and to, to Trenton. He goes all through the revolution and then to peace. And, and then he basically says at the end, he says, wait, I hear his voice now. And he says to me, cease your lamentation. There's empire to build. There's religion to revere. There's arts to, to patronize. Go and do my business and, and mourn me no more. It's a wonderful speech. And it's, it's the high point. And as you pointed out in a life that's, it's, is about to completely cave in but the portraits of him and Anne in philadelphia are great because they're like the kennedys mm -hmm. you know this is glamorous couple and she loves it and he loves he can go to the theater he's in his element there's think of charles uh, charles carterly had this memory because he had this great he wrote these very scattershot memories later in his life of yeah. his childhood and boyhood and one of them was that he was on his father's shoulder and they would go to the theater together and you know, he had a voice like a silver trumpet. And this He's really, that term in Congress, he's really in his, his groove to borrow, some, you know, our, uh, oh, yeah. from our language. But as soon as, you know, he, he takes, he votes against Jeff. He wants Burr, when, when the president, presidential race of 1800 gets thrown to Congress, he goes back and forth with Hamilton about this. And he basically says, I can't support Jefferson. You know, Hamilton says, well... We got to, you know, they're both bad, but Burr is psychotic, yeah. right? That's basically what he the says. Fam the famous uh, Hamilton's advice to Lewis Bayard, I guess, in, in, in Delaware as well. When it, yeah. So he tells all, he tells all his, his lieutenants, so to speak, yeah. right? So to, you know, grit your teeth and just vote for Jefferson. And um, Lee won't do it because obviously because of his antagonism towards Jefferson. And maybe he respected Burr because they went to, he had some level of respect because they were they went to Princeton together, and and also because Burr was a veteran, also right. So which meant a lot to Lee, and, and because he chided Jefferson in some of his rhetoric for saying you didn't you didn't fight in the war. Mm -hmm. So um, so that's the end, though. That is the end for him politically. He he sows his own demise, demise with, because the, the Jeffersons are are now the 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 dominant force in American politics at the turn of the century, right? And and, and also in Virginia. Yeah, in Virginia. So he's he's done. And now the bill comes due on decades of investment. And yeah. and so the year the next years are spent hiding, 
desperately concocting schemes to pay creditors, uh, avoiding creditors is a wonderful, um, I actually have it in my book. I, I don't know if I'm going to read it to you or not, but there's a great episode and I've looked at the legal documentation of this where at some point one of them, these are such convoluted schemes, but one of his agents who he had given some title to some property to who had then lost money on it was allowed into Stratford Hall by the sheriff of Westmoreland County and um, took some of Lee's property. And when Lee finds out about this, he storms on his property, he kicks down the fence, he bashes into the house, he smashes things left and right. He then takes silverware and dishes and a couple enslaved people and gores an ax, an ox on his way out the door and gets out of there. And it's like, you know, it's like he's revisiting his days from the, the war foraging, but for very different purposes. But reading this, this is berserk. This is a man who clearly saw that his his time was running out and that he had no options. And an event, and he does eventually, he has no, legally he takes the option of going to, to debtor's prison instead of declaring bankruptcy. And he's spends, you know, what, a year, two years. There being, he was originally in Montrose, uh, which is the seat of Westmoreland County. And then he's moved to, I think, Spotsylvania Courthouse yeah, is where he, yeah. he ends up. And he, there, this is another typical Lee. In the, the, the low point of his life, he manages to write the memoirs, yeah. you know, which is a, a triumph of, of some sort of uh, real resilience. Yeah. And I think it is an overlooked American um, classic. Thank you for saying that because I I think that that really is the case. It's it, still it's fun. It's wonderful, fun to read. It's a very good still. read. It's still a really good yeah. read. Um, and it's uh, yeah, a lot of a lot of. Uh, it certainly is a memoir. It's not a history. It's <laughs> um, <laughs> very well said. Uh, it's, uh, he wants to pretend it's a history, but it's uh, but it's a memoir, and he uh, he. Uh, Harry Lee always comes out looking the best of everybody. <laughs> um, Nathaniel Green always takes his advice. Uh, yeah. People like yeah. Daniel Morgan refuse to take it. Uh, yeah. That's sad. Uh, that's too sad for them. Uh, but it's he's in the right place at the right time when we can be certain that he wasn't always in the right place at the right time. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's but it's still saying all those things. It's a great read. It's a great memoir. Yeah, it's so colorful too, and, and there's yes. so many wonderful little stories, and and I think part of it is you're completely right. He's the star, and it's the you know he says at some point when future generations well, this thing was in a letter because you know he he wrote letters from prison to all these other veterans of the war, mm -hmm. kind of pinging their memories on on the areas where he couldn't remember, and they supplied him with what their recollections, and he filled in a lot of the book with that. And one of the letters I think he said, what, what, you know, the point of this book is when future generations inquire who won us our freedom. Well, the answer is obviously Harry Lee. That's you know, <laughs> <laughs> he wrote that. That's that's fantastic. But he didn't write. He didn't write that. I'm saying that. I mean, that's, that's yeah. That's that's you read the book and yeah, you say, yeah. who who was the hero of the revolution? Yeah, oh, it was Harry, Harry Lee. That's right. Harry right. Lee. Uh, and it's it's certainly there's there's uh, he does try to talk about the beginning of the war, but it's all about really about the southern campaigns. Um, yeah, yeah. There's some very interesting stuff in there that you can ferret out. He talks about because the notes. There's also a wonderful notes and commentary. Notes, yeah. and, and it's you know he says talks his feelings about slavery. He says it's a you know a terrible terrible institution bequeathed on us from another generation. But of course the it's the you know the planters lament how awful it was, but let's not do anything about it. Despite our intellectual abilities to create a new nation, let's not do anything. To, it's very to much it. the lament of that generation. The, the, like Morgan says, you know, I, I want to get rid of it, 
but in the meantime um and it's none of the founding generation were the positive good school um, now, what did morgan eventually what did morgan do uh, with his will he, he gave uh, his enslaved well he set up a trust for his daughter who was married to a drunk um and so he set up a, a, a very special very legally circumscribed trust uh in which the trustees could only do what his daughter told them to do uh and part of that inheritance was 15 enslaved people but he gave three or four people as gifts to two young children two or three young children uh whose relationship i can't quite figure out um they might have been um children of a soldier of his i'm not certain Mm-hmm. Um, I can't, I haven't been able to track down the relationship or even the name. Um, so yeah, in the end, he paid, paid lip service to the idea of gradual ab- emancipation. Um, but he didn't do anything about himself. Yeah. Yeah. The, the uh, same old story. Yeah. The same old story. Only in, you know, Washington's the only one with a slight bit of difference in that regard. But, yeah. um, so he gets out of prison and then it seems almost in my memory, almost immediately, he gets himself into the riot, the Baltimore riot, uh, which yeah. is often referred to, but its full gruesomeness is not appreci- fully appreciated. And I'm sure I have yeah, that you have gone into it in some nauseating detail because um, it's it's disgusting stuff. It is disgusting. So, so stuff. why it happens because of 1812, right? I mean, that's is it before or after the war's begun? Because I it's uh, it's in July. July. July, you know, so right as the, the war is just beginning, right? And so he goes to defend or to be with a friend. Is it a Hanson? <laughs> yeah, it's Alexander uh, Conti Hanson. Yeah. Th- this is a little murky because after – well, here's what I think. Here's what – from reading the material. I think that he went specifically to defend Hanson, that Hanson requested his presence. He based – Hanson was based – remember we talked about Scott's, Scott's farm? Mm-hmm. That this was – Hanson – thought of this as the same thing as this small group of people in this house hold up and a superior force yeah. trying to force them out. And who are you going to turn to Apparently. in such a case? But they, yeah, they, yeah. the hero of Scott's farm, but Lee after the fact in a couple different occasions said, Oh, I was there because of the, my memoirs just to talk to a publisher or yeah. I only dropped by the house to play a game of cards. But I don't, I don't think that's true. I think he went there specifically to defend uh, Hanson's publication, which which is admirable, because then you can make the case he sacrificed himself for the for the First Amendment, mm. you, you know. or just to for a for a good fight, for a uh, good fight. So he yeah. get, they get attacked. This uh, he's Hanson's the newspaper, the Federalist editor of a Federalist newspaper in Baltimore, which, in a in a not a Federalist, which by this city. time has become extremely Democratic Republican. Yeah. Um, and uh, is very, for some reason, I can't quite figure this out, why a seaport's so in favor of the war, because other ones weren't. But they are. Um, and Baltimore does pretty well out of it, too, after they build lots of privateers and stuff. They, they Yeah, people, people don't realize Baltimore. Was Baltimore the third biggest city in America at the time? It's, by that time, it, it started. But then it, its future growth is going to still to come um, because of its connection to the Shenandoah and to... Uh, and also to also, I mean, it cuts Philadelphia out of the Pennsylvania grain trade, so it becomes the wheat port, the corn port, the the grain mm-hmm. port of uh, of the of Middle America, and and then once you build the Chesapeake and Ohio Railroad, that sort of really does it. So that's, yeah, that's why it becomes a really important port. 
um, but it gets a lot of money from from financing privateers during the uh, or from successful privateers during the War of 1812. So he uh, they hold themselves up in Hanson's house. The mob mm-hmm. attacks and then Lee surrenders. It's not like Scott's farm at all, right? I mean, they... not, well, Lee Lee's an old man now. Yeah. Lee, the, the, he's not a his thirst for battle is diminished, and I should say Hamilton or uh, Hanson's a real antagonist. I mean, mm-hmm. spewing venom at Madison and the administration. And then they're forced out of Baltimore and then he comes back in to, to start printing again. And this Mm -hmm. is when, when Lee comes in and um, yeah, you're right. They, they, they're, it's a hopeless thing because as, as we just discussed, there are no federalists or the federalists that there are in Baltimore want nothing to do with Hanson and all the city officials from the captain police to the mayor are democratic Republicans. So what interest do they have in protecting this group of federalists. So Lee recognizes this and, bas- and negotiates a, a surrender, as you said, where they, they say, we will leave if you will protect us. And they say, we will put, the only way we can protect you is by putting you in the city jail. There you will be safe. So they march out of the house under uh, a police escort and they go to the Baltimore uh, jail. And, uh, you know, as you know, somehow someone slips the key to the mob and they break in and they, um, they confront Lee and Hanson and the rest of their um, their group, which included James Lincoln, another mm-hmm. veteran of the uh, a grizzled veteran of the uh, the Revolution. Isn't he the one that rips open his clothes to show them his wounds? Yeah, and uh, he says, well, "You were in some bog in France while I was fighting for, yeah, for the, Ireland, for your freedom." Or was it Ireland? Yeah, you're in the Irish um, bog when I was fighting for freedom. They call an old Tory, and they they tear him apart almost yeah, literally. Yeah, yeah. Um, so. They uh, the scene that happens is that they rush from their cell and try to bypass this this mob and they're all knocked down one by one and Lee is thrown down. Lincoln is killed, as you know, and Lee um, is thrown down a flight of stairs. He has his head bashed in, his nose is split in half, and then they someone pour. tries to saw off his nose with a penknife. I think yeah, yeah, unsuccessfully, he, he, unsuccessfully he puts up his hand at the time and. He just he glances and he has cuts across his cheeks and then they pour candle wax in in everyone's eyes to see if they're still alive and then the the, the scene is just incredible because there's children dancing around the bodies and they're singing songs in celebration of Jefferson and and, um, and Madison and they're saying you know the old the old Tory died you know as he lived you know supporting you know mm-hmm. which is incredibly ironic because he's one of the people who pride king george's hands off of off of the colonies so it's it's sad but in the, the original thought is that he's the belief is that he's dead that he and lincoln both died and there are editorials in some of the federalist newspapers saying as much and, and henry lee the fourth is writing to friends in baltimore because he they don't know the lees don't know what's happened but he's taken to um york mm-hmm. pennsylvania and cared for there and then there's a description of him um in, in his bed and just saying that his, his whole head is black and swollen and the nose is torn apart and there's a hole where one of his eyes used to be. And did he lose an eye from that? From the he didn't lose the eye, but he must have lost some. He has to lost some form of sight, but he didn't lose the eye, I don't believe. And after a period of time, he does recuperate enough to go back to Alexandria. We should say that when he comes out of prison, Henry Lee the, the fourth takes over, becomes of age and takes over Stratford Hall and the Lees, the rest of the Lees 
along with Robert, moved to baby what Robert. Is, it was like yeah, four, baby four Robert. Five, I guess. Yeah. Right. They moved to Alexander. What is Old Town now? Mm-hmm. Where they where they will remain until um, Harry leaves for the islands. But he's he recovers enough physically to resume some form of life. But he obviously is the, the beatings. Um, destroyed his his health and there's we talk about you know post-traumatic stress he must have suffered from an additional round of that after after this but he's he's really there's nothing left for him at this point there still owes money he's he has no political career he has no military career his health is really shot Uh, he's he's in alexandria i I don't there's this you know these stories about how he would march around town and have a shopkeeper that he would play chess with. And during the chess games, he would harangue him with stories about Washington and the revolution till one day the shopkeepers, like just can't handle it anymore. Next time Lee showed up, he, he made his assistant say, he's not here anymore. Don't, don't come by. But, um, the, the recollections that to me were the most fascinating was after the mob and he comes home, you have a young girl's memory of him at Christ church there. Um, in the middle of Alexandria, seeing him in the church and, and just saying this, this scary, monstrous looking old man who, when his eye would catch mine, filled me with great fear, his head wrapped in bandages, his eye black. And this is, and the children, the parents of these children would tell them that this was a great hero of the war. So you have this, this transformation from this dashing hero to this monster who scared children in the streets of Alexandria. And so it's, it's quite sad. Yeah, it's it gets worse. <laughs> but yeah, it gets it's not even over with yet. It's not over and he leaves Alexandria and goes to the Caribbean for for his health to avoid credit to avoid his creditors both. All, all, all of it, all of it, yeah. Because there's and, nothing and, and, for him there because he can't stand to live with his wife or who knows all those things. Oh, maybe all of it. You know, the argument especially of the time would have been that the Tropical climate would have had restored, sure. you know, restored powers, and and he also is fortunate in the sense that Madison is president and Monroe is Secretary of State. So he go he says to Monroe basically, "I have to leave. I, you know, my health is shot." He says to Madison too. So finally, Madison takes pity on his old friend, and they because remember the Chesapeake would have been blockaded at the time, mm-hmm. so he would have needed some form of permission from the federal government to get out of there. So finally, Madison instructs. Monroe to tell the general who's commanding the Chesapeake, let Lee pass. In fact, I found the the request in one of the the State Department archives where he basically says, the president has great personal interest in the fate of General Lee. So he's gone. He he gets his pass and he heads off to the Caribbean. I think he goes to Haiti first and he spends the the remainder of his life was 1813 to 1818 wandering around the islands, living off of his wits, living off of the generosity of those who would uh, accommodate him or feed him, uh, continuing to swindle people when he had the opportunity and declining. And to the point where by the end, he's just a threadbare vagabond whose physical appearance is described as basically a skeleton. And um, I mentioned this in a previous conversation. So the thing about, I tried to, it's basically the bookmark, the book end of my book is that in the um, special collections at Washington and Lee, they have the diary that Lee carried with him mm-hmm. during his wanderings in the islands. It's a little leather-bound book about Ye Big, and it starts off fairly legible. He mentions 
his beating at the hands of the mob in Baltimore. And he talks about how angry he is about the war she opposed. And, um, but then it kind of, it, it ends up being, my impression was that this is really this man who's alone, despite occasionally meeting friends and his wanderings is alone. And this book is where he turns his energy. And there are um, commentaries about modern politics, about ancient history, about religion. There's mentions of Washington. There's advice for his sons, live virtuous lives, which he didn't do himself. And by the time you get to the end of it, it's almost incomprehensible. It's almost if you see this mind deteriorating, you see madness setting in as this life is ebbing. And it, it, in its own way, it's a kind of a terrible, um, horrifying thing to behold. And uh, I, I thought it was a great symbol of, of his life ending. Because you also, as you read it, and you see this is clearly a powerful intellect. Mm. I mean, the, his recall of, of history and his understanding and, and someone who clearly loved ideas and big concept and, and, and was a great intellectual, but also there's a certain madness about the way that it's all being spilled out on these pages. And that's the thing he carried with him until his, it was among his um, belongings. And or I guess I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but, you know, he eventually in 18, 18, 18, uh, 18 this is, you know, so typical. Uh, James Costin, who's a, uh, an agent from Baltimore, is in Nassau for some type of um, claims, trying to reclaim some um, war spoilage claims. And he runs into Lee and Lee learns that this man from Baltimore is here on business. And he says, you have to take me home. And I, the impression is that Lee probably, he had been, been talking about, during his, let, his letters back and forth to his family, continually say, I'm better, I'm worse. I'm better, I'm worse. It's back and forth. I have a new physician, I'm better, I'm ready to come home. There's talk of coming home for, for years. He must have either felt he was well enough or he must have known he was about to die. But he convinces this young man to take him back to the States. Only problem is that you, have, you can't leave Nassau unless you've repaid all your debts there. And he obviously can't. So there's a woman who he's spending time with, the widow Baldwin, who he's actually is accommodating him and taking care of him, mm -hmm. who agrees to pay off his debt. And Lee gives her a promissory note to a bank in Savannah. There's, he has no money there, of course. Costin later on goes to reclaim the money for her, and he shows up, and they say, we've been getting these notes for years from Lee. He has no money here. He's never had any money here. So Lee begins his life with so much promise, and he ends his life hoodwinking an old widow in order to get back to the United States. And of all places, they make landfall at Nathaniel Green's, the plantation where Nathaniel Green is buried. Yep. That's right. Uh, he's, as they are going up the George Coast, he says, take me off the boat. I wish to die in the home of my old general. And of course, he's long gone. Green's long gone. His, his, the home was built by his wife and her second, second husband. husband. And then, yeah. Yeah, yeah, at Green, the time, his... Green, yeah, Green didn't even die there. But his, yeah. his, uh, his remains have been moved there from the previous yeah. uh, plantation. And his, at the time, his daughter is living, mm -hmm. living there. And, and one of his other daughters is there, I think. And her son is, happens to be playing on the property, and the boat pulls up. And he, years later, he recorded the, his memory of this. And they, he sees these you know, two men get up, and they carry this old man in their arms, and they put him on a little boat, a little dinghy, and they, they row him to land. And, and Lee beckons for the child, and he comes, and he says, I'm, you know, who are you? And he tells him, and he realizes it's the grandson mm -hmm. 
of Nathaniel Green and he puts his arms around him and he says, I've come here to die, you know, go get your mother. And so he spends his last days in, uh, on Cumberland Island in, in uh, the uh, ancestor, the, the descendants of Nathaniel Green's home. And he spend, he's immobilized. There's some recollections that he would lean on the grandson and walk through the gardens occasionally once a day. And then he would take his meals in his room. He wasn't well enough to eat with the rest of the family. And then his life ebbs. And there's a great anecdote that um, um, this little story about how a doctor comes to see him and suggests a medical procedure. I think his, you know, his gallbladder was failing. You know, I think that the, the internal injuries from the beating were yeah. what did him in, I believe. And the doctor comes in and says, we can do this procedure for you. And he says, doctor, even if Washington himself were here and suggested this, I would say no. And that's how he goes out. And he dies at, um, at Dungeness on Cumberland Island in uh, 1818. I think it was March of 1818. And, and that's the end of the this, this story. So it's not a Well, it's story. not really. It's yeah. not really the end no, of the Not story, really, but, but we're not going to talk about that part. Yeah. Um, it's... Uh... Well, if his father, if his son hadn't been Robert E. Lee, we would know a lot more about him. And yet, what what do you think we take away from him? And what do you take away from this? It's not a happy book to write. At least with Morgan, there's some unhappiness at the end too. But um, but there's you know there's there's a certain unhappiness with all lives. And a certain Morgan had great ambitions, and he 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 wasn't able to provide for his children probably quite as he would have liked to. Um, mm -hmm. And for a kid a guy who be, walked into Winchester homeless, um, that was a very, that material comfort was extremely important to him. Um, but this is a different order of magnitude. This is a couple orders of magnitude of unhappiness um, uh, greater. Um, is he a cautionary tale? Lee, is he, is he like, uh, you know, I, I think of uh, Walter McDougall had this couple books about American history in which he talked about, um, Oh gosh, he had oh he was calling it something like um, confident conman nation or something like that. He had this idea of a, you know this the the spirit of American hucksterism, and you can certainly see that in Lee. You can see mm -hmm. that that sort of that sort of the plunger, but also the, the swindler. Um, is that the is that what 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 are you taking away from that? You're done with the book. It's published. What's left? In, what's the taste that's left in your mouth of of Harry Lee? Well. The, oh, the way to kind of back into it, to walk backwards yeah. into it is, um, and feel free to to, to uh, argue with me on this. Right. Um, my take is that Lee was, the swindling aspect of Lee's nature was a result of an overconfidence, um, uh, too much ambition, the mm -hmm. tendency to re reach too high and too great. And I think that when he was back into a corner, then he became a swindler because he had no recourse. I don't, I don't think that he was a pernicious person. I think he was, he was maybe naive. He was foolish. Um, you know, there's supposedly an old saying in Virginia that a fool he was born, a fool he lived, a fool he died. And, you know, What's I that? think there's some, there's some truth to that, but I don't, I don't think he was, he's been portrayed by some historians as an awful rank person mm. and i the taste of my mouth was number one i think he was a tremendously flawed individual as all as all historical figures are really as all of us are 
all of us, as all humans are, even more on a grander scale than most of mm -hmm. us, on a much grander scale. And some of that is a typically, there is a tip, something typically American about it. I didn't get into that in the book, but there's something very typically American about his character, about the ambition, about the spectacular failure, you know. But I think he, at the end of the day, the taste that was in my mouth was, I find him a compelling character, and I love the idea. I don't know, you tell me how you felt about Morgan, but I, sometimes I hear historians say, they write books about people, and they say, this is my guy, or, you know, they fall in love with their subject. Never fell in love with Harry Lee. I found him compelling. I felt sorry for him. I admired some of his characteristics. I was appalled by others. But I think it was fun to write a book about someone who you could kind of be detached from, not idolize, not loathe, but just tell the story and let the, the, the fact, the facts and the story itself speak to your audience. And the, the taste of my house was with someone who had many great qualities and who had bad qualities. And we don't really like heroes as much as, as this generation is very critical of heroes. We don't, um, we like more the flesh and blood. We like humans more than the previous. And I don't know if that's such a great thing necessarily, but it's good to be honest about and, well, the people who we revere, you know? Damn. Harry Lee is human, that's for sure. I mean, he, and that's, he's human all the way down. You get to my point, because it's it's one thing to say the founders were, pets, pet, were slaveholders, which is obviously by our morals today is a terrible thing right mm -hmm. and and but that's a very simplistic way of, of of saying they're not all heroes with harry lee you really have a flesh and blood human being who has her heroic qualities and who has um horrifying qualities and and he's a founder and he's a i think a significant figure in american history and this is this is warts and all and mm -hmm. I think that's there's something and to me writing it was fun i i think i hope those who read it enjoy that but at the end of the day i think someone like that who was such a, a mix of qualities who maybe was, are so identifiably human that we all have um is is um a, maybe a more compelling story than more compelling than saying i love this guy this is a hero a flawless hero or saying this is a dastardly awful person and lee is complicated and um, full of twists and turns and and it's ultimately tragic and um, I, I just think it's one of the from that era and maybe the whole history of the country is one of the most fascinating and um, uh, compelling lives the arc is just really remarkable my guest today has been Ryan Cole he is the author of give me the title one more time the title is Light Horse Harry Lee, The Rise and Fall of a Revolutionary Hero. And it's uh, it's a great story. Uh, as you say, it's one of the great Americans. It's one of the great, uh, fascinating, operatic American stories. Thanks so much yeah. for being with us. Yeah, thank you for having me. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page, where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Runat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week.